Well, hey there, group. I hope all of you guys are doing well. How was your uh, week, Nico and Joe? Great. I'm glad to have Russell on the show today. Yeah, our special guest, Mr. Russell Stutley. But before I introduce him, let me just preface this by saying, you know, England is known for, you know, great men like Winston Churchill, Paul McCartney, and Boy George, okay? I would think those are probably the three most famous until today. Uh, This podcast is going to put, uh, as he likes to be called, Sir in Waiting Stutley, uh, or S-I-W-S, I guess. Mr. Russell Stutley, legendary martial artist, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Tony. What an introduction. What can I say? I've never been so underwhelmed in all my life. <laughs> well, you know, welcome to Underwhelming. Um, if Again, people who are watching have to realize that, you know, we're limited to our guests because, because of Joe Cardinal, no one can have a full head of hair and appear on the show. Okay, so that's Joe's rule. He wants to exert his dominance uh, with his coiffure or whatever they pronounce it in French. Russell should know. It's a coiffeur, isn't it, in French? Coiffeur, yes, yes. I you know what they're like. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's the French. We we were at war with them for a hundred years. There's a reason for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we owe our French fries to them. Okay, I I I have to admit that. But, um, Chips. And it's funny. There's two great musicians from France, and they well, one passed away, but they both claim. They were French, but they're really Italians. And that's Michel Petrucciani on piano. And uh, still living is Richard Galliano, uh, an amazingly gifted uh, accordionist. Um, but yeah, with names like Petrucciani and Galliano, you're going to tell me you're French? Eh, okay. They don't sound very French, do they? We. Oui. So uh, yeah, welcome. And you know, for those of you who don't know, Russell and I have been friends for quite a long time. I met him. He'll tell you how we met, but uh, yeah, he's he's more. You know, people think he's a pressure point guy, and while he is that, he's much more than that, and he's going to discuss all of that today. And it's really a pleasure to have him on. He's one of the good guys. You know, there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of good and bad in in every field, but with Russell, he's definitely one of the the, the best guys I've ever met. So it's my pleasure to call him a friend. My honor. I don't know what to say now. I've gone all shy. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> You're welcome. So, Russell, how did you get started in martial arts? Same old story, really. My, my, my brother went first, took me along. He packed in. I carried on. Simple as that. And then got interested in other sports, cricket, rugby, table tennis, snooker. All that sort of jazz. Um, yeah. So, packed in the martial arts for a while, then got back into it. Always been interested in my boxing, and then it just grew from there. And it was just very lucky, different stages along the way, meeting the right people, people like Tony, and in England, people like Pete Considine and Errol Graham, and all sorts of people. And the people I've trained with just been super lucky, and just like bounced along with no real purpose in any of it and just ended up here somehow just complete flukes all the way through 
What style did you start with? Shutter cam. I've done other styles as well. I did uh, a little bit of um, uh, Wadaru and also a little bit of Shukakai. But also other stuff as well, Jiu-Jitsu, got Dangres in that, and Ryukyu Kempo, kickboxing, and a couple of others I forgot. I think they gave me some honorary Dangres about 20 years ago, and I lost the paperwork. I don't know. Quite a few. I don't keep count. <laughs> Can't be bothered. How, how is Tell me about your latest boxing, uh, oh, boxing uh, credential thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was asked last year to do um, a boxing coaching clinic for a lot of the boxing coaches over here in Cambodia. And uh, so it was a two-day coaching clinic for them. And at the end of the two days, the reports went all back to HQ, so to speak. And so um, a couple of days later, they were giving out the certificates for people and they asked me to go along. So I'm along there and I didn't realize what a big event it was. The TV was there and everything. And um, so then live on TV, they introduced me as their new national boxing coach, which was news to me because they hadn't asked me about it yet. So they did it on live TV. So uh, it was one of those ones where you couldn't even say no, can you? Which I wouldn't do anyway, but um, there you go. So last year, they made me the national boxing coach for Cambodia. And um, of course, awesome. COVID's done nothing but get in the way since then. So we still haven't really been able to get cracking properly with it. So again, it was due to start last week. And then some people bribed away out of quarantine and everything's locked down again. Well, it's great that you, uh, you know, have that. Um, it's just, a, you know, boxing. It's, we've talked about this before on the show briefly. But, you know, when I grew up in the 70s, you know, boxing and wrestling and whatever, um, they were not considered martial arts at all whatsoever, period. Absolutely, under no circumstance were they considered martial arts. And now in MMA, mixed martial arts, boxing and wrestling are two of the most predominant, quote-unquote, martial arts used. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if the word is hypocrisy or if it's, you know, ironic, but, you know... That's because boxing and wrestling are so extraordinarily effective, you know. Well, I, I find it ironic that people have spent the last however many years doing Eastern martial arts only to find out that the ones that work are the Western martial arts that they all didn't practice because they thought that karate and all the Eastern stuff would work better. And then they find out that actually, yeah, you're right, boxing and wrestling, they work best. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the, the reasons why is uh, the level of competition uh, is just, you know, extraordinarily high, you know, in, in, a, in a long period of time, you know, with boxing and wrestling. I mean, wrestling goes back, you know, eons. And, you know, boxing really has gone back, you know, over 150 solid years, more, more than that probably, but, you know, definitely a, a long time so it, it's been quite established whereas um you know many of the traditional martial arts you know really didn't have any sp- uh, competitive uh you know you know what i'm trying to say like shotokan didn't have a lot of you know world everybody from around the world is competing in a shotokan tournament you know what i'm saying exactly and yeah. 
people also don't understand their history. They don't understand that these karate, taekwondo, and all that sort of stuff are very, very new. Chokes Cam was only invented in, I think, 32. And uh, Taekwondo, I think it was either 1952 or 54. So, and you still hear people today talk about how they're hundreds of years old. And you just go, no, not quite. <laughs> not quite that old. And so, you know, they haven't really got the pedigree. It's spread like wildfire because you don't have to prove anything, in my opinion. Boxing and wrestling, you have to prove it. it, it it's quantifiable how good you are. Just like it, um, say, you know, weightlifting or something like that. You know, you said, I can, I'm a brilliant bench presser. And people say, how much do you lift? You say, 100 pounds. You go, eh, you're not brilliant. Right? <laughs> the weights don't lie. If you say, I'm a great sprinter, and you say, you know, what's your fastest time for 100 meters? We go 20 seconds. You go, yeah, you're not a great sprinter, are you? But you can, you can say all sorts when it comes to martial arts. Say, I'm a, Eighth dan, seventh dan, sixth dan. It is, you can't quantify it. So that's, I think, why it's got so big so quick. But when it comes to boxing and wrestling, how good are you? I'm a novice boxer, I'm a four rounder, I'm an eight rounder, a 10 rounder, whatever. It's quantifiable. And I think that's why those sports work so well and why they're the ones that people don't drift towards because it's easier not to. Yeah, and in a, and in a case of boxing, not not wrestling, but boxing, um, you know, there was ample money to be made, <laughs> lots of money. So it behooved you, as a trainer, to gain any legitimate edge, and therefore the science of boxing really exploded and became, you know, at such a high level because there was an incentive, you know, and that was to get to get paid. Uh, and believe me, when you look at the history of boxing through the years, you could see how it, where, where it first started. We do have some video clips available from roughly the turn of the 19th of the 20th century. Uh, and to see where it is now, or even as it peaked in the 50s, 60s and 70s, uh, it was an extraordinarily extraordinary development. Um, so that, that's really interesting. And with, with wrestling here in America, you know, it was a collegiate level sport. Okay. Um, not just backyard wrestling, but in schools, high school, you know, high schools in college. So once again, there was a, there was an emphasis to get better, to improve because of that competition. Yeah, absolutely. And may add that uh, both boxing and wrestling, of course, from sunny England. Well, you've been in the sun too long because wrestling goes way back. Uh, believe me, buddy. Uh, I, w- I would guess yeah, wrestling, I mean, wrestling is the first sport ever. I mean, probably, if you think, about, yeah. think about all the warriors and their training. I, I was reading a book uh, by Nicolo... Machiavelli, The Art of War, and talking about the ancient Roman armies and their training principles, and they instituted wrestling as like a, a, a national sport just for the citizens, you know, to develop them to get, you know, that preparedness to where they could do the military training. 
So I think wrestling has got to be one of the oldest, if not the oldest sport. Well, I think wrestling and punching people in the face has been around since caveman days. <laughs> yeah, I think probably the oldest sport, probably track and field, I think, <clears throat> you know, running, even like you mentioned, the cavemen, they had a run after their prey. But, you know, isn't it instinctive? You can take some kids who've never been exposed to any training and just instinctively they'll either punch or or grapple. Um, that's really, you know, it says a it says a lot. I mean, they don't line up in a baseball stance or a cricket stance or something like that. It's, you know, something, I guess, that's instinctive. And, and it's it, it exists in the animal kingdom as well. Yeah. Russell, do you know anything about the, the history of catch wrestling in England? And is there any – has anybody carried that on? Is, is there any clubs continuing? Well, there's the, the, snake, the snake pit in Wigan, I think, is the place where – it all started from, um, and there was uh, uh, Mr. Riley, I think, wasn't it? It was. Uh, the... Yeah, Billy Riley started it, but yeah. later, you know, like you know, World War after World War Two. So it, it it isn't one of these gyms that that is that has been around for two hundred years. It's it's also less than a hundred years old. But um, yes, yeah. Yeah, Allison Coleman wrote a great book on on that, and it would shock a lot of people to know that Billy Riley came to America and, you know, learned a lot from the American wrestlers, uh, you know, right around the uh, 1920s or 30s, what have you. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really quite interesting. But uh, you take a guy like George Hackenschmidt, the Russian lion, he was out of England, but way before the snake pits time, um, and he wrestled Frank Gotch in, in, in a couple of epic matches and others. But uh, a lot of works were going on back then, too. It was all you know, a lot of it was entertainment first and foremost. Right. So is boxing to a degree. It has to be entertaining. Yeah, there's a number of people in England trying to keep catch going in that area. And I, I, I did know the names. Uh, they escaped me at the moment. But it was a. Uh, an, el- an older guy, I think he passed a few years ago, called, I think it was Jack Mountford, was, was doing a heck of a lot of work with it. And um, there's a couple of other guys now, and again, their names escaped me, but uh, they're up in that Wigan area, and they're doing a lot of work to keep cats going, which is great. Now, uh, I remember talking to you and a couple other of my students in, in England. Uh, of course, we haven't, I haven't brought this subject up in a while, but there seemed to have been like a lag where with MMA was like kind of behind the curve compared to America. They were a few years behind. Has that changed? Are they, uh, you know, maybe because of the emergence of Conor McGregor from Ireland is the MMA scene in the UK. I mean, I know you don't live in the UK now, but I mean, it, it, is it, where is the MMA scene? That's basically well, when I left there about 11 years ago, everybody everybody did MMA. They all wore the, wore the T-shirt and stuff like that. All the local tough guys who've never been in the gym were all wearing the uh, MMA hoodies and stuff. Um, it certainly was gaining a lot of popularity. But um, as regards standards, I think that the problem that the UK had for quite a while was the fact that we didn't have a wrestling base of the same scale and size 
that the states have got because you've got obviously you've got all your collegiate wrestling and everything else and it's a it's a well-known thing in school college university whatever and it's not in england you know and um so they were losing that base we got the striking all right but the rest of it we were well behind but uh, they're catching up now and uh, you know and they're obviously training in the states a lot and vice versa but uh, it's, it really is big. But traditional martial arts is still the biggest by miles. Worldwide. Well, you know, I remember uh, generally, again, this is just generally speaking, not, not picking out anybody individually. You know, wrestling was, you know, America was always, you know, so dominant in wrestling, you know, Olympic level and stuff, winning gold medals. And you did this and that. England didn't. But England had, uh, at the time when I was younger, had a better judo program than the United States. Now, again, I don't know, I don't keep up with that uh, judo aspect because I know America has started to meddle. Um, but I know it wasn't until I believe the uh, 72 or 76 games when um, Alan Kowaj, who became a pro wrestler, Bad News Alan, Bad News Brown, he, I believe he got the bronze medal. And I'm sure, pretty sure that he was the first American to meddle in judo. Uh, in the Olympics, so that was in the 70s. So that, and I and I believe you guys had meddled before then, correct? Or do you know? I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, we had very strong judo with the likes of Brian, Neil Adams, and then other people after that whose names, um, George, Black Belt with consummate ease. Well, we've you know, always we had have, a very strong June at that room. We have some sad news to share. Just before the podcast launched, a few hours before, I found out that Marvelous Marvin Hagler has died. And there is a man who was just an incredible boxer. And he walked away from boxing after he was robbed of victory over Sugar Ray Leonard to this day any boxing aficionado should realize that Leonard lost that fight. Hagler won that fight. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's sad that uh, he's gone. And all we know is that he was suffering shortness of breath and chest pain. So it may have been a, a coronary of some sort. Uh, it was uh, following the vaccine jab. He was admitted to hospital with complications after taking the injection. And then four hours later, he passed. I, so I heard that with I heard that with Hank Aaron that he he got the vaccine and died like a week later. Well, now they're trying to dispute that with Hank Aaron. His family's saying that's it's it's not true. You don't know because you know you have these conspiracy theorists on the internet just running wild, and something needs to be done with that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Other than we lost a great boxer. I mean, Hagler was phenomenal. Spent a lot of time in Italy after his fighting career, making movies and whatnot. Um, you know, there's a guy who won over 60 fights. I think he only lost three. And one of them, of course, was the Leonard match. And then he lost to Vito Anifermo. And uh, I can't remember who else he he lost to one other match. But, uh, yeah, great southpaw. Unbelievable fighter. Yeah, in my mind, the, the best middleweight ever, Hagler. The best ever. Um but that report, by the way, was, was reported in the Daily Mail in the UK, which is the most 
fervent pro, you know, vaccine newspaper you could ever imagine. Um, so it's been reported there and lots of other newspapers as well in the UK is, is true. So I'm tending to believe it must be. But For yeah, sure. Hagler was, to my mind, the greatest middleware. I think um, uh, if he was you know, fighting today, we just run through this lot all on the same night. I mean, it's just a completely different story. Incredible skills, power, determination, chin, everything you could possibly want from a boxer, you've got it in Hagler in spades and more. You could fight from either side, going forwards, going backwards, inside and outside, anything. Any type of fighting he could do, and he was one of the best in the world at it, at any type of fighting. Put it all together, and he was far and away the best. And yes, you're right, Tony, he was robbed. Yes, he was robbed. I, you know, I'm thinking that he may have lost to Sugar Ray Seals. I'm not sure about that, though. But my memory is not what it used to be. But, you know, the middleweight division has always been, pound for pound, I think the most exciting division because you have that one-punch knockout power. You have that quickness and that speed yet. Um, it's And, it, you know, historically there have been some, you know, tremendous middleweights through the years. Uh, but yeah, Hagler was a very special and his fight with Tommy Hearns, especially that first round was it's epic. It's like a movie, you know, nonstop rock'em sock'em robots. Incredible. Incredible. And, and here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand is just how hard the damn guys actually hit. People just don't get it. They, their only point of reference is how hard they've been hit or how hard they think they've been hit. They have got no idea just how hard these guys actually hit. And then top middleweights are not far off the punching power of heavyweights. They're really not. And when you consider the weight difference, they're even closer than you, than you think, if that makes sense. And they've got the speed and the movement to go with it. They, I think the middleweights... The 160, 168, that sort of area, the super middleweight, I think are the, some of the most dangerous people on the planet because they've got that speed, that agility, that movement, and that incredible punch power as well. You cannot believe how hard these guys hit. You really can't. Yeah, that's that's very, very true. Uh, yeah, it, it, it boggles my mind, though, that when you when you think street fight, for example, uh, they're they're probably again generalization here, but they're probably walking around, you know, close to 180. I don't know how much a lot of them gain. Some may gain a little more. Some may gain a little bit less. But I'd say 180 or so, 185, is a um, fair assessment of their walk around weight. So, you know, they got that they got that power there. You know, even when they're not in in top shape. Uh, I, I know some middleweights, 185 walk around weight at six feet, and some yeah. of them even get up to 200 pounds, and they're not really fat at 200 either. I don't know how they get down to 160, some of them. And, um, you know, and they're still quick, even at 185, 190, 200. And that power at that weight, you, it's a shock for most people, I tell you. They, you know, they, they got no idea. And then with the heavyweights, they've got no idea again. Right. Uh, yeah, being on the receiving end of those punches is never any fun. I can remember that for sure. And, yeah. you know, the thing is, 
we've, you know, one of my buddies who passed away, he was the ring champion, uh, tried out for the 76 Olympic team. Unfortunately, that was the year of Sugar Ray Leonard. So kind of tough to make that team. They had some greats in America, Sugar Ray Leonard, Howard Davis, Leon, uh, who passed away recently, Leon Spinks. Um, but Johnny Lira, and we used to work out and he'd be at my gym and, you know, just, we would talk about the importance of, of, of timing. And I remember asking him who had the actual faster hands, Howard Davis, who he, who he fought professionally or Sugar Ray Leonard. And he said, well, Howard Davis was probably technically faster, but you know, Sugar Ray just had that perfect timing and timing is so important to be in the right place at the right time and to hit you when you don't expect it. And I think that's the, the thing that a lot of guys who haven't really sparred at a high level, uh, when you get hit, when you well, with a punch you don't see coming, you don't have a chance to brace for it, man. Its impact is magnified. You know that. Yeah, yeah, you're done. You're toast. I mean, people look at boxing. You see it all the time. You know, if you're watching like a, a big fight in a sports bar somewhere or something like that, there's all the armchair warriors there saying, "No, you should have done this. You should have done that." And they just think you're just throwing punches. They have no idea of all the other stuff that's going on, the footwork, the timing, the distance, the angulation, the feints, the head movement, the little subtle shifts in your shoulder, your elbow, your fist, your hand, whatever. Just even little facial movements that, that, that make the other person do something you want them to do. And the speed of those punches coming at you, and it's not just one, it's several of them. And... The, the accuracy of, as well of, of a proper fighter, proper boxer. And it, it, it's the striking element is, well, the difference between a boxing top striker and an MMA striking, the, there's, it's just mountainous, the difference in skill. And that's from somebody who's got a lot of experience in, in striking, kicking, knees, all of that, and boxing. I'm telling you, boxing skills, are ridiculously high compared to MMA's striking skill. Yeah, I, I I try to tell people that uh, when they, like you just said, these armchair guys, when they're watching the fights, oh, this guy is this and that. Well, it's like a car wreck. You know, if you've ever been in a car accident, you know, things happen quickly. And you're right, boxing, things happen so fast. And if a puncher is missing his target a lot, I mean, give credit to the defensive boxer because he's on it. You know, he's seeing all the tells and he's he's moving and he's getting the angles and um and it and it's subtle. You know, boxers don't generally move in and out of range. They're staying in range so they can counter punch. So for them to slip and move, I don't know how many people realize just how difficult that is. And that's a skill that goes away quickly. You gotta got to keep working on your reflexes um <clears throat> and there you know in boxing they say the power is the last thing to go but your reflexes go and that's what happens to some of these older boxers they become an easy target they can't move as quickly they can't you know they don't have that reflexive power therefore they're they're relying on blocking the punch more and then when they block it slows down any sort of counter punch so there's a there's a chain of events that happen here but um yeah, an elite level boxer is is really something to see. Believe me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've trained with elite elite level boxers. I've done hundreds and hundreds of rounds 
And when they turn it on, right, you're talking about people who are, you know, high level cannot land a punch. And when you've got, people don't realize just how skillful they are. And the, the understanding of your opponent's reach, distance and timing is something that most people can never ever get. They might understand a little bit of their own, but to be able to just have somebody in front of you in, in range where they can land on your face and you can just subtly just move a little bit, move a little bit, go off angle a little bit, and they're out of range and you can hit them back when they don't expect it. At full speed, full power, somebody trying to take your head off, that's a skill to behold. And when it's being done to you, <laughs> it is horrible. It is horrible. It's a great experience, but a terrible experience. But the yeah, people it's, don't know it's, just how good they are. It's extraordinarily frustrating <clears throat> to not land a punch, and it ex you expand more energy when you miss. So ideally, yeah, you want to move, move, move. Now, you know, Johnny, Johnny Lira, um, he was trained by a few people. Chuck Bodak was his main coach, and then he, Angelo Dundee and whatever. But Johnny was not a very – he wasn't into head movements and all of that. And Bodak's thing was, you know, that wastes energy, which, you know, you just have to be in better shape, that's all. Um, that When he was fighting uh, Howard Davis, uh, Davis wasn't moving. Davis was kind of flat-footed, and Johnny did well first few rounds and then when Howard started to dance and move Johnny couldn't hit him and that's when it all fell apart um but yeah when you can't be hit you know that's the the epitome of fighting to hit and and not get hit uh in that in a striking sense that's the that's the ultimate level there uh and and oh, it takes it takes a lot of work but in in justification when you're dealing with not necessarily just MMA, but when kicks are involved, well, now you're throwing in a different range because yeah, I may be out of range for you to hit me with a, with your hands, but you could strike me with your legs. That kind of changes things, but you, you should still be able to dart in, get angles, cut the guy down. Um, there's, there's, there's ways to, uh, to deal with that as well. Jamming, fighting on the inside and, I, you know, I just, you know, boxing isn't the same for me. My heart isn't a fan like it was for me in the 70s and, and 80s. And somewhere along the way, I think the early 90s is when I just kind of, you know, lost my burning desire to, you know, with being a fan. I think boxing suffered a lot over the last 20, 30 years or so because – we're inundated with boxing trainers and boxing coaches so that but we haven't got any teachers. Right? When you look back at the old school teachers, coaches, right, but they were teachers. Yeah, you look back at old school people like Ray Arcel, who was the trainer yeah. of Duran. Right? He had a saying that um, you know, it's a classroom that you're in when you go to his gym. And you should be learning something in the classroom. Whereas today, people go to boxing and say, have you done your shadows? Yeah. Have you done your skipping? Yeah. Have you done your bag work? Yeah. Okay. You've done some pads? Yeah. Okay. Right. Good. See you tomorrow. That's it. And then when you watch them doing pads, it's just bullshit anyway. 
you know, you look at uh, another great trainer, Don Turner, who trained uh, Holyfield. Uh, he won't do pads. You look at some of the greats from the past. Did, pads only came around, I think, in the 70s anyway. Ali never did pads. Uh, all those greats before him never did pads, all them lot. It's just a, a new way of getting people trained. They're all out here doing bullshit pads as well. You know, there's so much of boxing being lost. Um, Archie Moore used to talk about it all the time when he was talking about some people when they, you know when a boxer comes in close and they put them under your arm and stuff like that and they can't get out. And Archie Moore was saying things like, "How can you not get out of it?" And it's similar to some of the escapes I saw you do, Tony, with in catch. You know, with like a fireman's thing you call it. I can't remember the name of it now anyway, but whatever. But it, it's all very similar. And um, you, you, lock, you lock the arm onto your chest and just walk through. And it, and we we were doing that in boxing, kickboxing years and years ago because of what people like Archie Moore had said. And then looking at some of Tony's catch stuff, we could put that into boxing, which was some of the stuff that was missing from boxing unbelievably, from way back. And it, it, it's all there. It's, it, boxing's got it all alongside catch, as long as people look at what was there in history. But today, they're all looking to try and do shoulder roll, which they shouldn't be doing, because they're all trying to copy Mayweather, which is the worst thing they can do, because if you don't master that shoulder roll, if you're not an absolute master of it, don't go near it. It's a top tip. Leave yeah. it alone. Leave it alone unless you're an absolute master of it. Don't go near it. You will get bashed up. Well, well, what, I think another should, thing... Oh, go ahead, on, Tony. I was no, just going to say, what should they be working on instead of shoulder roll? Just fundamentals. Exactly. I know it sounds boring, but they've got to be working on the, on the basics. And the basics start with footwork. Everybody's teaching, you know, jab, cross, jab, cross, hook, blah, blah, and again, put your hands here, do this, do that. I... I I still always start people on footwork. They do footwork, footwork, footwork. First thing they do, footwork. Walk in the gym, start on footwork. Next session, footwork. How long have you been training? 20 years. Do some more footwork. Are you the best in the world at it? No. Well, keep practicing until you are the best in the world at it. Are you the best in the world at it? Yes. Good. Keep practicing so you remain the best in the world at it. Keep doing footwork because if you're... I've been saying this for years and years and years and years. And I heard Tony say as well, which put me on to Tony's stuff. If your feet are in the right place, everything else kind of works. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's why I made a video on footwork. And as a matter of fact, when we launch this monthly membership thing, the first video is going to be on that because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's your mode of transportation. You know, if you don't have good wheels, you're not going to get to the store. Well, the same thing here. You know, you don't you don't have that, that fundamental uh you and that's the beautiful thing about boxing. Boxing has a limited amount of techniques, very, very limited amount of techniques. Whereas some other martial arts or styles, whatever, uh, they keep wanting to introduce new things, right? New, 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 new. You got a thousand different things to learn. You can't, you cannot master all of that. You know, boxing is about attributes, speed, skill, this and that, timing, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, it's an elite thing. It's, you know, it's kind of like a concert pianist. I mean, not that I'm a concert musician, but these concert artists don't have like, they're specialists. 
Many of them will only do one or two composers, Chopin or Beethoven uh, or Liszt, something. You know, they they're, they got tunnel vision. And in a way, that's how boxing is. It just works with the little skills that they or the little techniques that they have. And it, it just develops awesome skills. And, um, you know, there's something to be said about that. Yeah, actually, I, I always like the analogy as well as uh, snooker or pool for you guys so you understand the cue sport, right? Pool. If you're playing pool, basically all you got to do is push a stick straight. But every single shot is completely different. Don't matter how many times you play, every shot you play is slightly different to the previous shots. Don't matter whether you're drawing it back, you're putting running English on it, checking this side, as we call it. It don't matter whether you're doing it hard, slow, don't matter whether you're trying to cannon into a ball, you're really trying to bank it, don't matter where you Every single shot is slightly different. But other things to one side, your stance is going to be roughly the same. You're going to be pushing the stick through roughly the same. It's going to be at different speeds and different powers. And so it is with boxing. There's, you know, if you take a jab, you play that. there's a basic way of doing a jab, but every time you throw a jab, it's going to be slightly different because the opponent's slightly different, you're slightly different. You might be going high with it, low with it. You might be doubling it up, troubling it up. You might be moving off an angle. You might be coming under, coming out. You might be doing a jab like Duran did to Leonard in round two of the brawl in Montreal in fight one where he smashed him up, where he nearly knocked him out with a jab. Uh, there's, there's so many, and that's the same with every punch. Yeah, there's not that many punches, but there's a million and one ways of doing each one of them. And that's yeah, variation. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And that's what I love about it, because like with me, people always used to write me and say, well, show me something new. Show me a new technique. Why? You're not even good at what, you know, the, the, the few techniques you know now. Uh, you know, catching somebody by surprise, that's not a way to, to live your life because if, if they counter that, you're done. You know, you, you have to be a, a master of, of a few things here. And um, that's why I was always taught, like you just said, the fundamentals. And I harp on that to people constantly for 20 some odd years. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. That's the only way you're going to get better. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're big on saying fundamental. I've heard you say it as well before, you, as well, Tony, years and years ago, as principles. Learn the principles of the technique. Because if you understand the principles of that technique, how it works, why it works, you then understand other techniques. If you just learn technique upon technique upon technique, you become the technique guy who doesn't know how they work. And then when he's faced with a slightly different scenario to the one from which he learned the technique, he can't do it. Yeah. Whereas if you learn the principles of say, I don't know, they say an arm bar or something like that, you can apply an arm bar from all over the place. You, on your DVDs, Tony, there's tons of times where you talk about a principle for this technique and you suddenly go into about 10 different ways of breaking somebody's arm from the same place or whatever in a different way, but it's still breaking the same joint. Right, <laughs> right. You know, and just use different body parts to break it. But people don't think well, like that. I, they learn one way and say that's the only way. Well, I tell people too to, uh, like from a marketing standpoint, you know, I think we discussed this the man of a thousand holds and all that, you know, but I don't want you to think that way because that becomes overwhelming and it's nonsense. It, it works from a, 
you know, like people used to say, how, you know, Tony knows more submission holds, blah, 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 all these. Well, it's, it's like your vocabulary. Uh, do, do you really know how many words you know? No, you don't. You, you, you don't need to know how many words you know. Same with these holds or moves. You don't need to know how many you know. You just got to be able to understand the principles and, you know, the sky's the limit. But I don't know. You, we, you and I are old school. You know, we, we think in a, in a different way. And it's, it's really nice when I, I run into athletes that are, you know, from our age group or even older than us. Uh, they, they think like we do. It's, it's not quantity. You know, it's the quality of what you know that sets you apart. And the, the funny thing is, when you understand the principles, you end up with more techniques than the technique guy because you can modify it as you go, whereas the technique guy is stuck with the techniques that he can remember at that time. And which is why I'm so big on teaching the fundamentals, the basic principles in boxing, because every bit of that fight is gonna be different to every other one. Every bit of that spar is gonna be slightly different. And if you understand the principles, then you can still throw your punch and land it. If you only understand one way of throwing that jab, if the other person's not in the way of that jab, it's not going to land. You, you've got to work it so that you can land it against a moving, resisting opponent. And, and the only way to do that is to understand the principles upon which it's based. If you just do techniques, you'll never get it. And, and you've proven that time and time again with catch, Tony. I know you have. Yeah, yeah. You have too. And, and you know, yeah. uh, it's kind of like, you know, when, you, when you're – when you have a level of experience, you can, you can, I can watch how a guy puts his hands up or just his fighting stance. And I know if this guy's had proper training or not, I mean, it doesn't mean that he's not a threat. Even if he, if you realize he's not that good, I mean, anybody, you, you don't ever want to get lulled into thinking, Oh, well, this guy's a nobody. You know, I always approach things as everyone I face is the toughest man that ever lived. So I'm always on high alert, but as a coach, distancing myself, watching, I can say, okay, you know, this guy hasn't, you know, he doesn't have it. His balance isn't right or he's leaning, you know, whatever. But again, unless they have an injury, this comes from not knowing the fundamentals, not knowing the principles of movement, of physiology, of aligning your back, uh, you know, and, and your chin and your everything. It, it's, there's a lot really to it. There's, oh man, is there a lot as opposed to the flamboyancy, you know, the flash and, I don't know. Just to me, they all want to be flashed. They all want to sit there in the shoulder roll and and do all this pretty shell stuff and look flash and be good with it because they think they're going to be a Floyd Mayweather, but they don't realize that Floyd spent years and years and years and years of all day drilling the fundamentals, the basics, nonstop. He's got the basics down. So, and he's learned that Philly shell over a period of time. And he can do it because he's got such great fundamentals, got such great basics. Whereas everybody else has got crap basics and things. Well, I'll do Philly shell because it protects me like it does Floyd. Well, no, Floyd's shell protects Floyd like it does for Floyd. But your shell won't protect you fiddly because you don't know what you're doing. What do you, what do you think about the Mayweather style of mitt training? You think that's a fact? I mean, obviously it, it works for Mayweather, but I think a lot of people just want to 
you know, do some flashy mitt work and yeah. train like Mayweather, but it, but I see, I see people doing it. They're really not throwing any hard punches. I, what do you think about it? Do you think it's effective for reaction and timing? Or, what do you think? I, I think that um, it's a great way to get people to try and do fast pads instead of learning fundamentals. <laughs> and if I was a world champion for 20 odd years, like Floyd was, I'd put out a load of tapes making people go the wrong way down the path. I'm not going to show him my proper training. People think that he does fast pads all day, and that's how he got to be a world champion. Again, I come back to, he's doing non-stop fundamentals and hard training. That fast pad is just a bit of fast pad, just to get used to this, this, this sort of movement, this sort of like tickety tickety movement like that. You don't need fast pads to do that. You know, and then because of that, putting that fast pad stuff out, all of a sudden everybody's mad on fast pads. You see all these other boxers doing fast pads instead of fundamentals. I can remember in England, lots of boxing coaches coming out doing doing a fast pad course and charging people a fortune to go on it because they said, oh, we've learned the Floyd made with the fast pads. It's just that it was absolute, pardon my French, it was just absolute bollocks. Do the fundamentals and you'll be all right. That fast pad is just fast pad. And it's the pad guy making it look good. And I'd go, like, I could take somebody on the pads and make them look really good and they, they could be an absolutely crap boxer and I'll make them look really good. Or you can take a good boxer and make them look shit. It's the pad guy doing the work, doing all of this. I can make you look good with it. They, they're just doing this. They're not even punching properly. Right. Doing it for a reason and doing a different thing. I, so I, I, I personally don't know. I don't know. But my, my viewpoint on it is that he just put it out there for fun. He, still, he does it, but he does it for a reason. And it's a, it, there's another thing that we say is that it might look the same, but it ain't. And that's particularly true with techniques. And, and it's very true when you look at, say, Tony's stuff. You look at him do a technique, you don't realize how crippling it is. And then somebody else doing the technique, it might look the same, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's very, very subtle details you don't see yeah. on camera and or anything. When Tony does it, you feel like you, you, your school's going to cave in or whatever it is. When they do it, you just don't like to get out of that. But it might look the same, but it ain't. It ain't. Yeah, well, and, yeah, another thing, too, when you're filming a video, I don't care who you are doing it, and I don't care what the subject matter is, it's not possible to cover every little nuance. Uh, you know, I don't watch my videos after I film them. What happens is this. Like, I film, like, when I worked, when I did for uh, two of the big production companies, they sent me the videos for review. So everybody that was on the videos, we reviewed it, and that's it. I don't like watching myself because I don't. And secondly, I'm like, oh, I should have said this, or I, I forgot to say that, or, you know. But, you, yeah, you, you, the, the subtleties, they're there. They're, they're different. And I get what you're saying about, about Mayweather because, um, you know, a lot of it is exhibition. Just like, for example, jumping rope. You know, sometimes these guys will go wild when, they're, when the cameras are on. Not that they don't do that while they're training but that's not the point in training okay is not to do all the crazy antics they do that to many times to um prevent boredom and you know sort of challenge things up but it's certainly not crucial to getting in shape okay uh 
and and that's what I think you're trying to allude to that it's 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 a demonstration it's flashy you know and getting the hands going um yeah I mean yeah, it's and, interesting though he's a, he's gifted yeah I mean he's, he's a gifted gifted athlete and a gifted fighter and I, I, the best of his generation to be fair I think you know to stand in the pocket against world champions and not get hit I don't care what you say that takes some balls and it takes some doing and um and he was brilliant at it but he trained like a demon you know he, um i can't remember his name oh zab judah zab judah yeah. went and trained with him and said you know he trains like he's broke he trains like he's got no money left and he's got hundreds of millions of dollars and he trains like he's broke and people who are broke don't train as hard People who are desperate to win that trainer's time. And and he's got that desire and that and that and that strength of mind to do it. I can remember an old coach saying to me years ago, old boxing coach, you've got to want to win, you've got to want it, you've got to want if you're gonna be a boxer, you've got to want it more than that heroin junkie wants his next fix. And that heroin junkie who's unemployed with a $2,000 a day habit still manages to fund it. All right, he's doing illegal crap and all that sort of stuff. But the point is, is that he's, he wants it. He wants his fix, his drugs that bad. He does anything to get there and he makes his two grand a day to feed his habit. And as a fighter, you've got to be like that heroin addict. You've got to want to be the best as much as he wants his drugs. And you've got to put as much effort into your training as the he does into his criminal enterprises to make his two grand. And that's to me, sums up the top people like Floyd. They've got that hunger and that desire and they are that, that heroin addict, if you like. Uh, yeah. And incredible. I think it, it, boxing has a uh, pecking order or a hierarchy where generally, you know, that it's going to take you a while to climb up that ladder and while you may have a gimmick, a shtick, uh, you better have the goods once you're in that, uh, in that ring. Otherwise, you're going to be exposed. So there's no shortcuts is what I'm getting at. Um, you've got to put in your, your time. And again, because of it being boxing, there's children out there. Like I started when I was very young. So there's kids out there that are really, you know, doing... The same rules. I mean, of course, they're modified for 10-year-olds and, you know, young kids. But, you know, they have years and years and years of training behind them uh, before they even think of turning pro Most in, in many cases. Not always, but, you know, in many cases. Uh, it just reminds me of, in the classical music world, many great pianists are from Russia or from that region and one of the reasons is if you're a gifted child, if you show an aptitude, uh, you're playing from the time you're a little kid uh, all the way until, you know, you, you hit a gifted learning program. And now you're in that program, uh, you know, for, for many years. And then when you hit about 18, so now you start when you're about five. Now you have 13 years of incredible world-class training where you have all the techniques that you'll ever need. No musical piece will be a challenge. 
and then you go off to the conservatory at 18 and you get three more years or so of polish. So by the time this kid's 21, they've been doing this stuff for 15, 16 years and they're embarking on concert tours worldwide. Nowadays, martial arts, many of them just, they, they want to start fighting right away. You know, a year or two of training, if that. They want to hit the big time and don't work that way in real life. No, but they, they also, and also those people you just mentioned, they're training all day, every day. People today, they go into a boxing gym two or three times a week for an hour or so, and then tell us, I want to be a fighter, really? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Have you heard of getting up in the morning? Yeah, seeing you here at R5, things like that, and they don't want to get up. It, it, same with martial arts. You know, they, they might have two or three classes a week for an hour, hour and a half, and then think they want to be a fighter. It ain't going to work. You know, you've got to be doing you know, a lot of hours every single day of the week. You've got to be, I've always said, to be a fighter, you've got to be unemployed and single, basically. That's about the only way you're going to make it. Anything else happens. And you, you've got too many distractions. You well, you know, some of the, there's some really talented MMA fighters, martial artists, uh, and they, they like, you know, take a, take, take one who has a strong wrestling background. Well, all right. Their MMA training may have only been, you know, let's say three years. I'm just pulling a random number, yeah. but they may have been wrestling for 10 years before that. Okay. You have to factor that all in, uh, or whatever the, you know, whatever the style was. And I just, things can't be, certain things can't be fast-tracked, okay? So you're critically ill. You're very seriously ill. You need either heart surgery, brain surgery, uh, organ transplant of some sort. Uh, do you want a doctor that's only had two years or three years tops of training? No, <laughs> all right? You're going to want a doctor who's had years of training, years of practice. Uh, that's how you have to look at this. You know, I don't want, you know, I would not want to send a fighter out there that's only been training for a short period of time or let, let lead him or her to believe you have what it takes to be a champion um, unless the level of competition is truly that horrendous and there was a time when that was true. The level of competition was very bad, but things have, you know, stepped up. So, you know, you've got to put in the, the hard work. And that yeah. takes, takes a lot. It just takes time. And I can tell if you're in a, in a hurry, if you're impatient and you want everything now, I'm not the coach for you, and you're never going to find that coach. All, all you're going to find is a money sucker, a guy that's going to take your money, and and be a yes man to you, but in the end, you're going to be you're going to be damaged goods, and that's sad because nobody worth their salt. And you're a great coach, and you've trained a lot of high level guys. You you will never tell somebody it's a matter of months of with training with me. No, you won't say that because you know it takes years of hard work. I, I've I've lost so many people because I won't let them fight. Yeah, they said, they said, when can I fight? Well, you're not ready. When you're ready, you can, but you're not ready. When will it be? Then know, when you're ready. So-and-so said, I can fight next week. We'll go and fight for them then. Yeah. You're not fighting for me because you're not ready. I wouldn't let you fight. 
you know, I'm going to go fight and they go fight and then they, then they pack in because they get bashed up. Whether it's kickboxing, tire boxing, boxing, whatever. You know, people don't, people don't understand when, when they should and when they shouldn't. And that's where the coaches come in. I mean, like you just said, Tony, you wouldn't send somebody off to fight if they weren't ready and neither would I. And, and it, people get upset when they hear that they're not ready because their ego thinks that they are because they might be doing okay in class or feel that they're, and they might well have improved a lot. But there's a big difference between being all right in class and actually fighting. And um, if they're not ready, they're not ready. But people don't want to accept it. And unfortunately, it makes people pack in the martial arts. Well, you know, it's a, in this country, and I know it is to the, to the degree where you're at as well, in other sports, you know, you have professional enterprises that are running the show, be it basketball, football, baseball, whatever. Uh, so it doesn't matter what you think as, as the athlete, how good you are. You, you can sit there and think, I could play in the NFL. I could play Major League Baseball. It doesn't matter what you think, okay? You can't tell your coach, I'm ready to play for the New York Yankees. It doesn't work that way. You, you, you're going to be prevented from that. you got to go through, through the levels. Whereas in you know, MMA or other styles like that, uh, you're, you're a little more freelance. You, you can enter on your own and start doing things. And, you know, I just, I get concerned because the risk of, of injury, both physical and psychological is there. And it, you know, it's just, I care too much because I mean, I've had injuries that, you know, are never going to go away. And I don't want to see other people have that happen. You know, there's, there is a boxing hall of famer. He holds a world record that I hope is never broken. And last I heard he was on the South side of Chicago and he was the youngest world champion ever in boxing. And his name is a legend, Wilfred Benitez. And he is unable to care for himself. And it's, it's a tragedy. He won the title at 17, turned pro at, I believe, 15. Uh, of course, he started young, and he was just gifted. You know who he is, Russell. And look how he turned out, and it's a shame. Yeah. And I, I know that MMA in, in particular, you don't take the, the amount of repetitious blows, but it, it does – a concussion is a concussion. And – you just try to avoid that as much as possible. I just don't want to see somebody go out there, you know, and get hurt, take a beating and, you know, maybe walk away from the fight. Okay. And then 12 years go by and you meet them on the street and they're like, yeah, I forgot what your name is. What's your name again? Oh yeah, that's right. Tony. You know, that's the, that's the problem with what we do. The fight game, you know, it has, it's insidious. It has hidden dangers that you may not be aware of until years go by. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Benitez, I think, was also one of the best defensive fighters the world's ever seen as well until he got a bit older. If you remember the fight with Hearns, and I think it was the second round, Hearns had him on the ropes and threw about 28 unanswered punches. And when you slowed it down and looked at it, not one of them landed. And that was Tommy Hearns trying. Uh, Benitez was an incredible fighter. And, uh, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I always say to my guys, I don't want you to take one punch that you don't have to take, which is why I'm so big on footwork and defence. I teach them footwork and defence first. The, the punches come later. You've got to learn to get out of the way. But you've got to be in the right place and learn how to slip, evade, move, block, turn, twist, shuffle around, all sorts of stuff. You've got to learn all that. You've got to learn how not to get hit. I mean, there's an old... Um, I don't know if you remember, oh, you, you'll remember him, Tony. Dwight Mohammed Carway, who was cruiserweight, oh, yeah. light heavyweight champion. He had a saying, and I'm sure he got it from somebody else be hard to hit and hit hard. And that's something that I've always tried to instill in everything that we do is be hard to hit, but hit real hard when you hit, you know? And the, it all comes down to being hard to hit because if you don't get hit, you don't get hurt. <laughs> it's as simple as that, which again comes back to Floyd being so good. Yeah, and and some of the old timers, you look at some of the fights they had, like Archie Moore, what do you have? What, 123 knockouts, Willie Pep, Willie Pep, yeah, over 220 I mean, fights. You know, he won a round without landing, without a punch being landed on him. That's yeah. how good of a defensive fighter, but he still had. The issues, uh, mental, you know, with the brain afterwards, you know, because you just, you know, people, it's not even the amount of fights that you have professionally, although they, they count towards it, but it's the gym. You know, a lot of the damage is done in the gym, you know, with the sparring and this and that. And how many rounds of sparring do you do? Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this not to get a definitive number, but, you know, you may professionally fight in a 10 round fight or a 12 round fight but how many hundreds of rounds did you spar yeah think about it people and, and how and how bad was the sparring what you see a lot of sparring people do they just basically go in and have a tear up uh, it's one way of sparring i admit sometimes maybe you might have to do that for a few rounds just to get just for a few rounds maybe but a lot of the sparring should be, to my mind, is a mini fight. If you, in so much as, if you take one bit of the fight, let's say, for example, you just get, you keep getting caught on the side of the head with a jab. Well, you got to work on that because you keep getting caught with it. So your sparring should involve somebody trying to throw that at you, not hard, but to touch. So you're, you're learning what to do in that situation. You take those, those mini bits of the fight and you keep breaking them down. And there's, there's millions of those. And you, or whatever you're weak at, it's, you know, if you take it, it, it catch or something like that, if, if you just can never get out of side control, if you're on the bottom, well, you're going to practice getting out of side control, aren't you? You know, you're going to, you've got to drill it. And then it's the same with boxing. If you keep getting caught with a good jab, you've got to get, you've got to get in there and drill and drill and drill how to stop it, how to, what, what are you doing wrong? And your, your sparring partner should be saying to you, I got you because my foot was here and you were just there and I was in range and you you weren't. Your head was in the wrong place. You he- your, your, your shoulder was over there or whatever. Whatever's going on, they should be both, both those people, both those fighters should be student and instructor. And that's the way I get them. That's the way I coach them. When you're paired up with each other, you're both student, both instructor. If you're landing, you've got to tell him why. If you can't land, he's got to tell you why we stopped it. And I'll be there as well. But you know what I mean? That's how it should be. Same with you know, everything. But unfortunately, people are just training and coaching and not 
teaching. I like, that. I like that approach. It's, yeah, I always like that. Like we do that by Tony's. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but I like that approach with grappling, you know, where we break it down into situations, but to do that in boxing, I, I don't think I've ever even seen a uh, boxing trainer or boxers do that. And I think that's a great approach. I don't think a lot of people understand what it's like to walk into a boxing gym. Well, it's been years now since I have, but like back in my day, it wasn't, you know, it's not like, you, it's not like the movie Rocky, you know, where you, I mean, it is in the beginning. If you watch the beginning of the Rocky movies, uh, like let's say the original Rocky, you see the guys working out, hitting a heavy bag, boom, boom, boom. Mickey's Mickey is dealing with somebody in the ring. That's the guy who's probably got a fight coming up. A lot of boxers are left on their own, you know, unless you're going to be somebody, you know, then you go off to fight camp, you know, but that, it takes a while to get to that level. But yeah, you know, there has to be some interaction, like a marriage between your training partners. They have to help you out. Um, but you know, for me, one of the reasons that I'm really not a big sportsman um, is because getting back to defending yourself and not getting the concussions and whatever. I mean, I learned this stuff to defend myself in the street fight where these people are trying to kill you. You know, you're going to die if you don't know how to defend yourself. And that's why that's my only love. That's my only focus is to make sure that people are able to defend themselves and save their lives. And, uh, and that's, you know, yeah, I have, I have trained competitors. Of course I have to, I have no choice. That's not where my heart is. My heart is in, you know, making you survive, especially if you're in a grappling match, you're not more than likely going to get killed here. I mean, you're not, you shouldn't be exposed to a concussive risk, but you know, maybe joint risks, but I'm all about your health and welfare. I, I want to save you, you know, from any damage. And, and, and what Russell just said, Nico can help out your training partners should not try to be beating you in the gym. Because by beating you, you're losing, all right? Because you want to make your training partner better, and he's going to make you better. It's an elevation thing. It's not stomping on him. You know, it's maybe getting one step ahead and then bending down and lifting him up to your level. And then he gets one step ahead and bends down and lifts you up. It's like climbing a ladder together. These so many gyms that I've seen that I've, you know, been at, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's just not a, it's, it's not the right mindset. It's all about dominating the weak. I not going to, no, it's not the way to do it. In my opinion. There was on one of your DVDs, Tony, I can't remember which one, but I made, I made, there was a clip on there and I made everybody watch this clip so they could understand the principle. This is going back a good few years, because when we were doing a lot of your stuff as well, when we were training, there was, I think it was Brian and Costa, I think, where they said, let's say the lock's on and they, they want to tap. So they tap and instead of just letting go straight away, you just ease it off a little bit. And then the guy who's being locked fights and pushes against it, just you're not trying to put the lock on him. He just pushes against the lock for 10 seconds, eases off, and then you apply it a little bit more. You should be able to get a little bit more movement on it and then repeat, repeat, repeat. Well, that principle of 
finding out where the limit is for both the person putting it on and the person being put on and learning to fight it, learning to recognize it, and all those other principles that are being learned in that little split moment, that little micro fire is exact principles that we try to get across in striking. When we're saying to people, well, you're getting caught with that jab, you're getting caught on the way in, or you're getting caught on the way out, or whatever it may be. And that was that to that to me that made it so easy to explain and show to people that these principles don't just apply in striking. Look, there's Tony teaching the same bloody thing in grappling. It's the same principle, the micro fight. And so many people just don't get it. Other coaches, other masters, they're sort of like, huh? What's the point of that? Why don't you just tell? Yeah, uh, now, you know, to each his own. You know, not everybody is everybody's cup of tea. You know that if that was the case, there'd only be one grappling coach in the world. There'd be one boxing coach. You know, everybody would be lining up to train with, with that person. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I... In the end, 25 years later, or let's see, I came out with the Lost Art of Hooking in 1999, so that's 22 years ago. Uh, we filmed in May, so it's coming up, the anniversary. Um, and, you know, some of the things that I talked about that people were doing wrong improperly, I mean, Javier said some people have made changes, but they're still making the same mistakes and people are still capitalizing on it. Uh Oh, it is what it is. But I, I think for me, when I when I think about boxers or, or something like that, uh, a, a great great athletes in general that brought something to this world and they're no longer with us, who's replaced them? Have they been replaced? And so on. And in the case of Marvin Hagler, I'm not, you know, I don't think he's been replaced. I, 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 you know, I haven't seen a middleweight since Hagler who I think would last more than five or six rounds with Hagler. I, I can't think of one. He, he was, you know, and then you, and you go back when you got people like Mons on and then you, you know, when yeah. Hagler was around, you had, you had people who, I mean, it was a killer. Do you look back at that sometimes? The top 10 then, they would all be far and away world champions today. You had some absolute killers around back then. Absolute well, when, killers. When Duran was a lightweight, he, there was another killer. I mean, Duran was a, a monster. Not that he wasn't great as he moved up in weight, but lightweight was, to me, where he excelled. You know, yeah, and Carlos Manzan. You know, what did he end up rattling off? 83 straight victories or something. Uh, he was just, you know, phenomenal. And, and, of course, Hagler. And, again, this is not saying these other guys were not good. They were equally dominant. It's just that I think Hagler had a little bit more, just, just, just a slight more that overall, you know, made him what he was. Yeah. And same with Duran. I mean, People forget that Duran was already supposedly old and he's already, what, I think, was it 80 and 1 when he first fought Leonard and smashed him up and gave Leonard his first loss? 
He'd already eighty-one fights, and he was already considered a bit old. And he went on to have a glittering career after that. I mean, Duran was phenomenal. I think the best lightweight ever. Simple as that. I think the best lightweight ever could do absolutely everything, and was smashing up middleweights. You know, he, he ended up, up doing. He he did some work matches in Japan. I he was humongously fat. I think he was like over two hundred pounds. He never even showed up in shape. Um, kind of yeah. reminds me of James Tony when he went up, you know, in the UFC. Um, but yeah, so ha- uh, that uh, what's his name, Duran? Yeah, he he did some of that. It's 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 interesting. Uh, but even so when he, he did those work fights, he looked like he could actually do it. You know. Oh yeah, well, I mean, yeah, he wasn't in shape, but it doesn't ma- doesn't mean that he did, forgot his techniques. You bet. Um, I don't know. Is it is it all right if I re- a, a reveal a secret and both parties are dead? Is is that okay or is that not good? They can't sue you if they're both dead. No, no, it's not, a, it's, it's not about being sued. It's, okay, so, you know, I was friends with Leon Spinks. So he had did, a, did an exhibition with Karate Joe Lewis in England, of all places. I believe it was England. And we talked about that. Now, I heard what Joe Lewis had said about it and so on. But now, Leon, if, if any of you knew him, he was really just a down-to-earth, nice, humble, just a great guy. I remember him saying that Tyson didn't even need a tune-up fight when he came out of the joint. He could win the title right away. Okay? This is, I mean, this is how he was. But anyway, getting back to the, the exhibition with Karate Joe Lewis, Leon said to me, you know, told me right to my face. I, when we were in the clinch once, I told him, I said, man, start, start hitting me a little bit harder. You know, make it look a little better. And Joe's like, I am. <laughs> All right. So what, the, what that showed was, you know, as great of a, of a kickboxer as Joe, Karate Joe Lewis was, his punches just, you know, he, you know they just weren't, weren't at a boxer's level, that, a level that, you know, Leon was – Accustomed to. Yeah. And he was actually a really good fighter. I mean, he was gold medalist in the Olympics, wasn't he? Leon yeah. Spink. You know, yeah. and beat Ali. But uh, it was a shame when... I felt sorry for him, actually, when Dwight Quarry smashed him up. Because he, he, he got down to cruiserweight, didn't he? Because he wasn't well, a big heavyweight anyway. N- no. You know, he was he was bigger than, let's say, a Floyd Patterson. Patterson won the middleweight uh, Olympic gold medal. Yeah. Um, so he was probably the softest hitter of, I mean, but Patterson is underrated in a lot of ways. He, he just was really never big enough to, you know, fight somebody like a Sonny Liston. Come on. Um, but yeah, Leon was a, a light heavyweight probably should have, you know, cruiserweight would have been his max, but he, Hey, he did what, you know, very few people ever, ever have done in the history of the world. And that is, Claimed the heavyweight title of, you know, of, of boxing. He was a world's heavyweight champ, and he beat Muhammad Ali to do it. Yeah, I think it was seventh or eighth fight, wasn't it? Something like that. I can't remember. I don't recall exactly now, um, but I remember remember when it happened exactly uh, when I yeah. was a kid. But you know, Leon, you know, it's just again things happened in his life, but he was just uh, you know just a nice guy, just really unassuming. Um, to be honest, but 
there's like I say, levels upon levels upon levels. And there's levels, there's levels even at world level, aren't there? There's levels yes. at world level. This is the thing that people don't get, especially in boxing. I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm going to leave the names out. A, a very famous boxer I used to train a lot with was in the gym, and he'd, he'd just not long retired. And somebody asked him to do some sparring with this other guy who was in there. All right. So my guy, let's call him, made this other guy look an absolute idiot for five rounds. He just he was falling over. He was going through the ropes trying to hit him. He was all over the place. Couldn't land a punch on him. Could not land a punch on him. And my guy is always a little bit sarcastic in the ring and stuff like that and joking with people and calling them names and all sorts of stuff. This other guy got so pissed off they called him all the names under the sun and stormed out the gym. At which point, my mate said, what's that with him? Why is he so angry? I mean, he's only fairly new to boxing, isn't he? But no, he's just won the European title. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Give me my license back, he said. Yeah, well, we've Fun kind day. of... Ex- it happens. We've had some experiences like that. Not so much storming out of the gym, but accomplished guys who don't do so well in the, you know, they get submitted, but it happens. Um, but that's the thing with me. I, I have such a high level of, you know, you, you, you got to do a lot to impress me because I've been around people that are just so phenomenally good in, in, in many walks of life, in and out of the fight game that so many fighters just don't impress me because I've seen, you know, I see, you know, deficiencies or whatever it is, or just work ethic or, you know, um, more marketing than real ability. This is not everyone out there. I'm just saying some, you know, we all know who these people are. We all have encountered people like that. Um, and, you know, even in boxing, whatever, there's, there's just, just because you're a boxer doesn't mean you're, you know, all of a sudden some terrific, impervious to defeat type of person there's but yeah I, I just I'm hard to impress and when Javier was on the show we discussed that and Javier was like yeah Tony's hard to impress but but you know he loves this guy or that guy yeah Roy Jones or you know Hagler or Mayweather you name it Tyson you know like the list goes on and on the guys that blow me away because they're so doggone good but um you know it, it's not, not the title today, though, is it? There's not many today. There's not many boxers today that you look at and think, yeah, they'd do it. They'd do it. I mean, I'm not impressed by many today in that way. I mean, you're obviously impressed because, of course, they're good. Don't get me wrong. And they're world champions. But when you look back and compare to some of the people before, I'm not impressed. There's not many I can think of. Well, I'm not qualified really anymore because I don't really follow it. Like I told you, I... My heart's not in it. And with everything else going on in my life, I'm not able to, you know, sit down and, you know, watch a fight. It's very, very rare that I can do that. So, you know, I'm out of the loop and I'm happy about that. Um, Baseball or something here in America, it's easier for me to watch because it's it's on all the time, you know, and once the season starts. It's like rounders, isn't it? That the ladies play in England baseball. I'm sorry. I think your internet is getting cut off. Joe, Joe, is Joe in the house? He's mocking us. Uh, he's mocking American baseball, Joe. Yeah. 
Is Joe even here? I don't, I don't think. I don't think Joe's a baseball fan either. That's what we say to the ladies: go and go and play rounders while the men play. Oh, rounders, yeah. It's kind of like soccer here. Our women are really great at it, but otherwise we don't we don't follow it so much. So there's a there's a parallel. Yeah, we we see the school I was at. We didn't have what you call soccer. What we call football, we have rugby, which is you know you have that American football thing where you wear lots of padding. Yeah, rugby, none. I heard that. What about Aussie rules football? You know, what about them? Yeah, but, yeah, but don't forget that they're, they're just English criminals. <laughs> <laughs> and once they've done their time, we'll let them come back to England. Don't worry. Like, I've done your time. You can come. <laughs> hey, I'm not getting into that. I, I love the Australians. I've trained some. And, you know, one night, hey, this is going back years ago when my gym was still in Stone Park. And I went across the street to the legendary playpen. Um, in walks a group of the, they were the Australian inline skating champions from Australia, inline skating and some girls and some guys, there was like six or seven of them, their first time in America. So I'm like, well, you don't want to hang out here. Let's go. So I kind of took them on a little tour and every, every little bar we hit, nobody believed that these guys were like, you know, champion, uh, skaters inline skaters, but they were a great bunch of guys. And I, I've trained fighters from Australia, good bunch of people. Everybody is, you know, I, I try to get along with everybody, man. And I love people from with their different cultures. But the one thing I will say to, to any Aussies out there, I just, I can't do your fosters, man. I just don't <laughs> dig fosters, man. Yeah, they, they, the Aussies, though, they're great fun. I tell you, they, they'll take the piss all the time. They don't mind. They'll take the piss out of you. You can take the piss out of them. They, they have no qualms with it. For, that's it. They, you know exactly where you are with Aussies. They are great fun. Great fun. And because they're, you know, our criminal ancestors, so, so to speak, you know, we understand them. So they get on with us all right. Because we know that they're, you know, lawbreakers. <laughs> and we, we we can treat them accordingly and they always sort of like doff their cap to us because obviously we're superior in every way well you know the thing is i uh one of my guys he'll be on the show eventually paul dodds he lives in newcastle and you know he was first time over he was dying for me to try a newcastle ale which i, I think he's got me on video uh drinking it shortly before they had to take me to the emergency room um i just don't I don't like the taste of a lot of uh, imported beers. Well, they're imported to us. Here. That, that stuff that he brought you, that Newcastle Brown. Yeah. There's only them lot up there that drink it anyway. In Newcastle. There's only them lot that drink it. Nobody else will touch that crap. Yeah, I don't. And, and you only got to go another couple of miles and you're in Scotland anyway. So, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. What's, what's the drink of choice in England? Well, Scotland, uh, heroin. <laughs> Five miles fast. No offense to any of the uh, jocks listening. <laughs> but if England's so bad, what are you doing there? Go back to Scotland. Stop moaning. Get off the park bench. Stop taking the drugs. Uh, are, are you actually English by heritage? Or are you Irish, Scottish, Welsh? What are you? Actually, I shouldn't say things about Scotland because uh, my family is in Campbell's on one side, which is a 
real Scottish thing. So we've got a Scottish, we're right old beach, yeah. Most people are in England anyway. Right well, Campbell's beach. is a soup over here. So you would be in a yeah, can yeah. liquefied. Yeah, yeah. Soup in England as well. But yeah, Campbell's is a was a was a bad name for a while in uh, Jockland. Or Scottish land, as we call it, for fun. But, uh, yeah. yeah, they're they're good fun the jocks. Yeah, I think I think it's true to say that there's the highest percentage of people in the SAS are jocks, which is oh, a really? small little country. Yeah. Well, one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived, Glenn Campbell. He shares your name. He was Scottish. He could play the bagpipes and things. And right there, you go. Yep. They get everywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was from Delight, Arkansas, which is a little southern area in America. Well, I'm, you've been to, to the states; you know all about that. Yeah, met a few southerners. They're all good fun, aren't they? Hey, man, you get good and bad everywhere, man. That's that's what I love about people. I just like being around the good good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 consider that. Uh, you know, if you got to be able to have fun, have a laugh and a joke, and if you can't do that, then so well, see you later. We don't do all that affecting stuff. Russell, what's what's the kick? Are you familiar at all with the kickboxing scene in Cambodia? Everybody knows Thailand and, and Burma, kind of, but I know there's some a scene there as well, correct? Yeah, they have what's called Kung Khmer, which is similar to Thai boxing. So you got, in fact, the Kung Khmer squad train alongside the boxing squad and almost every gym is come come in plus boxing or something or come come here plus mma so uh, like thailand's got thai boxing cambodia's got come come in or come come by depending on how you say it that day but, are uh, there yeah, so. differences or are they is it are the rules similar to muay thai or like i know in burma they allow headbutts are there anything different that you notice? Well, they've got the uh, the left wire as well, which allows headbutts um, and um, bare knuckle as well, I think it is. The, the, the proper left wire, which they do here as well sometimes. They were due to have the World Championships here in March last year, but of course the COVID crap started, so that got cancelled. But uh, that left wire is brutal. I mean, even when you get knocked out, if you can get them back round within a certain time, they can carry on. And you can headbutt them and all sorts of nuts. It looks, it's, it's not for older people. It's for the young guns <laughs> who want to go for it. It's not for me. I don't want to do that. But, Russell, uh, yeah. what do you think about light sparring? Do you guys advocate that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of body sparring. But Harold, I used to train with a lot at his old gym. A famous, famous, famous gym in England. Uh, Brendan Ingalls gym, which is one of the most famous gyms. Produced lots of world champions. Um, they did a lot of body sparring, a lot. Because if you can, you know, there's somebody actually trying to hit you, and if you can get your body out of the way and keep moving and still be in, in, in range to land to the head, right, you can pretty much do it when the head's involved as well. And you're not taking the concussive shots that you, you're doing on other stuff, so you can go a bit heavier and stuff like that. So, yeah, we big advocate on light sparring and body sparring. So I got to ask you, how do you, I've been in gyms where the coach will be like, tell everybody to do light sparring. And it usually lasts for like 10 seconds and nobody listens. So how do you, how do you get people to actually listen and, and do it 
because it seems like everybody has a tendency to just keep taking that light sparring and just take it, take it up a notch and up a notch. And then before you know it, it's full blown sparring. Well, that's where it's got to be controlled properly. That's where, you, you know, the, the teacher's got to be there. <clears throat> See, this is where it comes back to, are you teaching or are you just training? Because if you send two people off to go and spar without it being properly supervised, then you're not, you're not doing anything other than letting people hit each other. You, you've got no, you, as a teacher, you've got a duty of care to your students, to your pupils or whatever you want to call them, your fighters, whatever you want to call them. You've got a duty of care to them. So if you wander off and let them smash crap out of each other, where's your duty of care? You're supposed to be there to, you know, boxing is the noble art of self-defense. It's not the noble art of getting smashed up. So you, you should be there at all, as, you know, basically as close as the referee. You should be the referee during that sparring, not stood outside the rope shouting out instructions. You should be in there as the ref. And if the two of them get too leery, you should be in there pulling them apart and chastising them and making them do it right. The second that the levels go above where it should be, you should be on them, you know. And, and, and that doesn't happen. People like to see gym wars and crap like that and see who's the, the tough guy of the gym. That's, to me, that's just bollocks. That's just the ego getting in the way. You've got to, you know, chuck your ego away and, and help people learn and grow. And the only way to do that is to get in there and be like, like the rep, be that close. You've got to be there. If you've got to save, save people from getting hurt. Your boxers are too brave and they will rather get hurt than give up. So you've got to be there and stop it from happening before it goes too far every time. Yeah, when we used to train a lot of Tony's stuff, yeah, and just say the grappling side of it or whatever, he's forever shouting to people, slow down, slow down. And having to stop the class and grab hold of somebody and give them an, what we used to call an attitude adjustment class. But what do you do for the attitude adjustment? Put them in that much pain now, they never come back or learn. And that's it. And if it's boxing, we say, right, you've been warned so many times. You know, if somebody's continuously breaking the, the rules, so to speak, you've been warned that many times. It's either in the ring, full go, or out on the cobbles, full go. It's up to you. And then we'll do it that way. It's your attitude adjustment class time. And they either go away, don't come back, or they learn. All it takes so, is one, one person to ruin the gym. You know, yeah. and if the if the if the coach, the you know the owner, whatever the whatever you want to call them, head instructor, doesn't do it, doesn't stop it, put a stop to it, then all the other students, you know, lose respect for the instructor, and you know this and that, and yeah, you 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 have to put a stop to it, and the instructor has to not think about money at a time like that. He, forget whatever this troublemaker is paying you it's just not worth it for everyone else you know and that boils down to does the does the head instructor does the owner whatever have honor does he care more about his students or does he care about his bank account and you know it's what it boils down to man yeah i mean if you look at say the the, the grafting side of stuff and if you're practicing like that say top wrist lock something like that you're giving somebody your joint and saying, you can take it to the point of it nearly breaking before I tell you. And I've got to trust you not to do anything wrong. 
But you're putting a great deal of trust in somebody else. And if they abuse that trust, the person who abuses that trust needs their egg kicking in. Okay. Accidents are accidents. I'm talking about somebody abusing the trust. Yeah. I say to people all the time, if you're practicing grappling with me, I'm giving you my, my body to play with, if you like, and to have a chance to take it to the point where it could be break. If I tell you to stop and you don't stop, believe you me, I'll hunt you down like a dog and I will take it out on you like there's no tomorrow. You'll, you'll never, ever forget the day you hurt me if you do something like that when we were just training. Fights are fights, blah, blah, blah. Accidents are accidents. I'm talking about we're training a particular technique and saying, yeah, you've got to let go, right? And again, you let go, and again, and again. And you're getting people repetition, helping somebody else learn. If you're the one giving your body to somebody to help, and they abuse it, man, we won't allow that. That's it's just wrong on every level. And we say to it, oh, we we say to it, you know, you can go as hard as you like. Just remember, it's his go next. You know, you hurt me, I'll break you. It's that simple. And then people learn quick. It's very, very rare. You know, you always have to tell people to slow down, calm down, sparring, always. That happens every single time, loads of times. But when it comes to the, to the joint locks and stuff like that, people are very, very quick to understand that they will get smashed to pieces if they take the piss, as we call it. You know, and it's too dangerous. You know, you, it's just too dangerous. It's that simple. It's a life-changing injury. I've got life-changing injuries to my shoulder, to my elbow, and to my knee from, from pricks doing things like that. And then, no, I won't allow it to people in my care, so to speak. Won't allow it. Same in boxing, won't allow it. Occasionally, you've got times where you have to go a bit harder. I understand that. But again, it's controlled. If somebody gets hurt, it, it stops. It doesn't carry on. You know, if it, in boxing, if it would just be a standing eight and you carry on the fight, no, that's it, it's over. You don't spar again for another 28 days. Minimum. Even if it's just a hard little hit at all. So I think that's I, a good I think, approach. I think, yeah, I don't just think safety, 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 because it, it's not that people are too dumb to, to know they need looking after. It's the teacher's job to make sure they're safe. Absolutely. I mean, after all, it's, it's your house, so to speak. It's your place, and you set the rules. You know, if they don't follow the rules, they got to go. Yeah. I mean, we still train really, really hard. People think when I say things like this, I oh, must be training easy. It's not tough enough. But uh, we say, come and try a session. We train really, really hard. You know, people who think they're fit or whatever, they come along and... 15, 20 minutes in, they're puking their guts up. Yeah. You know, we train hard. I still train hard for what I can at my age. I still train hard. But they, people don't realize how hard the training actually is. They think we just stand around prodding each other with pressure points like this. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we do all day, mate. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, we just go like that. And we fight like that as well out the street. We go like that. Honest. I got to ask you about the pressure points because that's something kind of mysterious to me. I've never learned. Does, is there really pressure points that you could tap and people will just drop? Like you could knock someone yeah. out with just a small tap? Yeah, but let me put this into perspective for you, right? 
everybody knows about acupuncture and stuff like that. Yeah, so we all agree it's acupuncture. They've proven acupuncture works. They've even now proven meridians and all that stuff, stuff exists after thousands of years of the Chinese telling everybody. When you see a, a like, most of the knockouts I've seen online are fake, by the way. Right? So about 75, 80% of the ones I've seen online with a tapism, they're fake. Right? I've never known anybody fall unconscious with their legs crossed and into a position where people can rub the back and bring them in. When they collapse properly, you, you'll know. Right? Yes, you can hit it lightly. The reason being is that the other person is not resisting you in any way, shape or form. They've not got revved up, ready to fight. They've got no adrenaline flowing whatsoever and they're quite happy to go unconscious. So there's an element, which is why I say most of the ones I've seen online are fake. There's an element of almost self-hypnosis that I want to pass out, therefore I do to it. There's an element of that which doesn't negate the fact that the points work. We'll say, just hit it hard. Right? If you're in a fight, you can hit it hard. You're not going to hit somebody. With a, you're not going to go like this. You're going to smack it as hard as you can. So, uh, yes, they do work. And yes, we can teach you how to knock somebody out with a little tap. When they're stood there, letting you do it. You can learn it very quickly like that. And you can hit them about as hard as you knock on a door. You will never be able to pull that off in a fight because they're not going to stand there and let you hit them like that and with no adrenaline. You, when it comes to a fight, you've got to be able to get into position to land your, your technique. To, to me, the pressure ones, and we've been telling people since day one on this, it's the last thing that you learn once everything else is correct. It's like the poison typically like at the end of an arrow. If you haven't got all the other bits correct and got the aim right and you blah, 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 and all the other bits and send that arrow off as good as it should go, then it doesn't matter if there's poison on it if you miss the target. You know? And we, we, we also use the analogy of like a pistol or a gun, whatever you like call them. When you, shoot, right? you go to a pistol range, you don't walk in there and go, <laughs> then hit the target. You aim at the target and you, and you try and hit it. You train to hit the target. So when people say they can't hit a point, you go, well, you're not training to hit something, are you? We're trained, when we teach boxing, we teach people training to hit accurately, not just hit towards the face. We're trying to hit particular areas of the face. They're like, we've got this logo thing on my T-shirt, whatever. We would put a bit of chalk on somewhere or whatever. So that's what you've got to hit. I used to do it all the time with sparring. I'd say to somebody, I'm only ever going to hit you just here. That's the only place I'm going to hit you in the whole of this spa. You can hit where you like. I'm only going to hit you just there because I'm practicing to hit one particular point, one particular place. Not when I say point, not pressure point. I'm hitting one particular place. And I'm learning accuracy. So when it comes to it, I can hit what I'm aiming at. Because if you can't hit what you're aiming at, you're not very good at hitting. And so all these people who say I can't hit it, yeah, you're right. You can't because you your striking is no good. You're not training it properly. You're just training to hit. You see it on the heavy bag. You see it on pads. You see it on shadows. They're just throwing punches. When they're hitting the heavy bag, they're not aiming. When they're doing pads, the pad guy's doing the work. When they're doing shadows, they're not aiming. They're just throwing punches. All of those things need to be addressed. 
when we're doing shadow, there's got to be a reason for it. You've got to visualize somebody there and where you're actually hitting and moving. Why? Are you defending yourself on the way in, on the way out? Same with point. On the bag, you've got to be hitting specific areas of the bag. When you're sparring, you've got to be aiming to hit certain places. Otherwise, you're just throwing punches for no reason. You're wasting all that training time. And this is why we can make the points work, because we spend in years and years and thousands and thousands of hours training properly. So it's easy to make the points work because they're there. Just like with Tony's stuff, he makes it look super easy because he's probably fucking thousands of hours of training doing it right. People who are doing it wrong will try it and go, oh, this doesn't work. And then people give credence to that prick, sorry, saying it doesn't work when they've tried it for two minutes, but they, their training's been crap. And then people listen to him saying, oh, it don't work, therefore that stuff, you know, pressure points don't work, so I tried it. Really? Have you tried, slip, you know, diving off a cliff? Have you tried climbing Mount Everest? You won't be able to do that either. Doesn't mean it can't be done. And you see it with people trying with cats as well. Oh, I tried cats, didn't work. How did you try it for? Oh, I did a class. Uh, you mean you couldn't do it? And then people listen to these idiots saying, I tried it and it didn't work. You know, I find it frustrating and annoying. I used to argue with them, but now I just, yeah, get on with it. I go, yeah, yeah you're you right, can't. it can work. Yeah, you're right, it can work. Yeah. I've been through all of that. It's just like taking a boxing class. Okay, and you know, your boxing isn't going to be good. Or take one wrestling class. Your wrestling's not going to be good. You're not going to score these takedowns or these knockouts. Does that mean boxing and wrestling doesn't work? No. You know, I've had guys do that. Oh, well, your hold, this hold isn't working. You're not even, you're not even close to doing it the right way. You're not even there. You know, you're not even in the same ballpark. Everything is, <laughs> you're doing everything improper. So, yeah, I mean, it, it goes with, it goes with the territory, just, you know, like many, many, many years ago in the beginning of the internet, pretty much when jujitsu was all, you know, just garnering its momentum, people who were just pretty much beginners. Oh yeah. I tapped out this, this guy that boxes, he's a boxer or whatever. Well, you may have, but he wasn't boxing you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you had him in a grappling situation. He knows nothing about it. So don't make it out like, you know, you it took him down and didn't get hit once and then submitted him. It didn't go like that. Yeah, it's um, confirmation bias is what it really is. They want to be around scenarios that a lot of people, no matter what the subject is, they want to be around like-minded people, you know, and, you know, if you've been doing something for many years, you got a vested interest in it. All of a sudden it's been exposed that, wow, you know, it's, it's not good or you're not good at it. You know, they get pissed instead of saying, wow, you've turned the light on. Let me learn all you know. Uh, nope, they're just going to kick you out and go back to their to their little circle of friends where, you know, they're either on equal footing or they're, you know, their top dog. It's confirmation bias. It's it's a common yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, I I just find it amusing. We used to get it all the time with the. And I'll say it about shout again. It's my background shout again, so I can have a go at them all day long. But they would come along to to us, and we'd teach them how to hit hard. And no, no joke. Honestly, we, most people, we, most traditional martial artists, will double or treble their striking power in about an hour, right? So some of these people have been training 15, 20 years, and then they start questioning what we're showing them. You go, hold on, excuse me a minute. I know you've been training in Shota Camp 20 years under 
sensate X. You haven't questioned anything he fucking told you in 20 years and you hit this hard. In an hour, you're hitting twice as hard and then you question it and moaning about it. What's your problem? And it's not quite shelter can, is it? Oh, I've got back to shelter can. And that's what it's like. Oh, loads of that. Loads of that. It was literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times for people. Russell, I wanted to ask you about the hitting hard because yeah. I, I looked through some of your videos and I seen the one about um, creating heavy hands. And I had, I had an experience I trained with the a Russian Sistema guy. And I'd always, I mean, to me, the strikes looked really sloppy and, and looked like bad form. And this guy was showing me basically the same kind of thing about heavy hands. And when he hit me, I'd never been hit in, like that before in my life. He hit me in the body. It felt like it went into my organs and came out the back. I mean, I've never, I've been hit by like world-class athletes i never experienced that before so i'm wondering is did you get that from sistema or where, where did you get that from and and what is the kind of the mechanism behind that the heavy-handed hitting it's basic um body dynamics and body physics really uh, and visualization so you understand you can think of it in the right way it comes from what we call a waveform or just it's similar to what in Shokan, in Shokan karate they used to have years ago, double hit, even though they're doing it wrong now, but how it used to be done. Right? If anybody in England is listening, go and check out Peter Constantine to learn the work properly. But it's similar to that, and it, it actually comes from Silverback Gorilla, right? Yeah. Come along, just went stunt on this other one, and dust came out of its arse. <laughs> you think, well, if you can hit a 500 pound gorilla with a slap on the chest and the dust comes out of its ass, you've got to be doing something right. So basically, it's like you think of it as a whole body movement. So it's just pure body physics, body dynamics, body mechanics, and skeletal alignment put together in a package. Say, so right, do that, and your punch will go through better because you basically you put your body weight behind it. That's basically all it is. And so with the Sistema guys, I, I know several of the Sistema guys, and, and they're doing it all with this uh, movement and, and stuff like that. But it's basically the heavy hand is just a visualization saying, make your hand heavy. Just like um, if you take, it's the same principle if you look at catch, when Tony's saying, put your weight on somebody on top. And you talk about the vectors that go in when, the, when you're doing weight bearing from, say, side control or something like that, when you're saying the, the direction of the force of the weight, and you can feel it almost crushing the lung. Like when you do your head and arm position, Tony, and you, you're basically taking a lung out, and it's that direction of force. So it makes somebody feel much, much heavier than they actually are. And you think, well, hold on, how can somebody who's, you know, 80 kilos feel like they're 120 kilos or whatever? They can't be physically heavier. But it's that direction of force, correct? And so it is with striking. It's the same principle. You're taking your whole body weight and you're delivering it through in the strike properly so that you get that huge amount of impact going through. And what most people do with strikes, it, it hits and it's a surface impact, right? Because they do things like shitty pads and things like even some good boxers 
it's it's a surface impact. You can take you, it. It hurts, of course, it hurts, but you feel you can take it. And it sounds really? powerful when you hear the, yeah. you hear the pads. It sounds like pop, pop, yeah, pop. But, it, yeah, but you get hit. Yeah, but you get hit, and it doesn't feel like it penetrates. Yeah, and it, when you look at them doing the heavy bag, you'll see that the bag will swing because they're doing the punches incorrectly. If you hit the heavy bag correctly, it will it will bend in the middle where you hit it. They hit it and it swings. That's not a punch. That's a push. Basically, a hard push. And and that's what most people do wrong on their strikes. That waveform strike, that thing that you felt the heavy hand is helping you visualize correctly, so that you go in and the the, the strike goes inside them. And Can I just. What, I just want to add something before it gets lost in what you just said about the push. And that's so right when you see that bag swinging. So a lot of heavy bags will have springs on them, um, which is really great because when you hit that bag right, that heavy bag should be bouncing. Because like like he said, it should brush, it should bend, not not be a push or a slap. so, yeah, I, I strongly recommend having those springs. I used to have those at the gym. Um, here I don't when I hook up my heavy bag because, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have the, the ceilings low. But that's all. Yeah. So, so with the striker, we use these white pads, the foam pads, because they, if it's a surface impact, the guy holding the pad just go, no, that was crap, that was crap, that was crap. But if, if you can get it to go inside them, they'll feel it. They will feel it. They're using like a kick pad? It, it's, um, it's called Etherfoam. Oh, okay. It's a white pad. I don't know. If you've seen any of our clip, you might see a clip with it on. But the, the, you can hit it with a sledgehammer right? and the person holding the pad's fine. But if you do the strike properly that goes in, then you'll still feel it through those white pads. We drop people through them. I've even knocked people out through them, actually. But it, you, you've got to get the strike right. It's just delivery of body weight. It's, all, it's just proper body mechanics. The heavy hand comes in, and it's the same principle, like I said, as Tony, really driving the weight through on things like the head and arms, which is a heavy body. Um, you can have heavy hand, you can have heavy arm, heavy leg, heavy elbow, heavy headbutt, heavy body when you're doing it, heavy lock, heavy takedown. Heavy girlfriend and Joe's, you know, whatever, mate. <laughs> Things like that. So it's just that, that principle again that you can apply everywhere. I mean, we were doing the heavy hand stuff, and then when I see Tony doing the thing with the catch, doing the heavy body and stuff like that, it didn't twig with me straight away. And my mate, who was a good grappler, he suddenly was doing the weight bearing thing, like a bit like Tony, right? I said, fuck. Oh. How do you get so heavy on top like that? And he said, Oh, this pressure point guy called Russell told me about a heavy hand and told me to apply it to everything that I do. So I did a heavy body just like that Tony Chiquini did on his DVD. I mean, oh, yeah, I didn't Good man. Yeah. You know, give then, him some shepherd's pie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it was it was then that it started to realize that. We were talking the same language, as you like, as Tony. But what Tony was doing with catch, we was doing stood up, the same thing. Heavy hand here, put your weight through there. If your weight bearings down that way or this way, wherever the punch goes through, or the elbow or the knee or the kick, whatever, 
it's the same principle. You just apply them on a different plane. And, and, and that's all it is. If, if you can do weight bearing the way Tony says, you can do heavy hand striking. And if you do heavy hand striking, you should be able to do the weight bearing. And striking on the ground is a whole another element. I mean, depending, I mean, yeah, you may have gravity depending on your angle. Sometimes you don't have gravity, but you don't yeah. have that kind of power of the body behind you. And this is where what Russell's talking about can, can really come into play. Um, but, you know, that's why I like the rips because, you know, I can put a lot using what Russell was just mentioning, the heavy body, as he calls it. I'm putting my rips with my heavy body yeah, to just exactly. amplify everything. And the pain and the pressure is extraordinary. Um, and it's constant. And I'm never put out of position by, you know, sometimes if you throw a punch or something, not always, but many times you're, you're out of position. But, um, yeah, it, this is a way to expand your knowledge, uh, Nico. I mean, I would, you know, watch his videos and you, you can pick up a lot of stuff from Russell. And it, it's great to incorporate uh, in your overall fighting game. Russell, do you have do you have a video that is based around that, like heavy hitting and hard striking? Yeah, 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 yeah. We got lots on power generation, lots of it. Yeah. Is there I'll, one I'll, one you recommend you. to me? Yeah, I'll I'll send you some. So just send well, me mention it, mention it, so others can. Yeah, because I, I definitely want to. Yeah, I can get it from my site, russellstudy.com. There's a ton of stuff up there. Um, there's some free lessons they can take and a couple of the lessons have got power generation on it as well um, so if they understand that principle they can apply it everywhere from that one lesson so they, I they, want sorry. go ahead no I'm just saying that the, the way Tony was doing the, the, the rips and, the, and the, the way the body was turning when you said to him about how to put on a lot proper and so it becomes a break not a lot and or it is a break but you're doing a lot for being nice and that sort of thing. And it's that same thing. It's that whole body. If you've got the whole body weight going through somebody else's elbow joint or shoulder joint, that joint ain't going to last too long. And it's the same if you've got your whole body weight going through somebody's jaw, their jaw ain't going to last too long. They're going to go unconscious. And, and the ground striking, Tony, is, do you mind? Have you got one minute, Mike, just to explain this? you got all the time in the world. Okay. But when people, they're on the back, they've got you in what they call guard, yeah? So you, you're on your knees in guard, and you see them striking away, and they're like, hoop, 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 like that, or they're down here, and they're trying to throw strikes away. None of them are thinking about striking, right? When you're striking, you've got your legs one in front of the other normally, right? So you're like that. So this, this is your feet, and my knuckle here is my knees, right? So now I'm on my knees on the floor. So I go from one foot in front of the other where I've got power. And then in guard, I suddenly put both knees down parallel and try to throw straight punches. So I haven't got any power. My knees are now my feet. And I'm stood square on trying to punch straight. I say to people, stand square on and try to punch straight and see how much power you've got. It's vastly reduced. Put one knee slightly in front of the other. And it's now like you're in a boxing stand. So you can be in guard, one knee slightly in front of the other, not a lot until you get turned, but just enough, because remember, if you extended it out, you would be feet quite a long way apart. 
but when you bend your knees, your, your knees aren't that far in front. And now you've got that angle on your body to throw proper punches. You can actually throw proper boxing punches from that guard position. We've been telling people that for 20 odd years. Nobody listens. I oh, know you've got to have your knees. Let me do it like that. Okay. Try it. And then you find the hit twice as hard and go back to the other way. Just try it. It only needs to be that far in front, half an inch to an inch. And all of a sudden, you've got loads of power striking from that guard position. And people just don't realize. And then we say, you're allowed to strike MMA and you want to get up. I've not seen any of them yet do what we do. Just, just it's smacking one in the leg and get up. They all think they've got closed guard and they can't, they can't break it. They try and do it all sorts. They might be a decent striker, but crap grappler, and they try and grapple it on the ground. Just smack them one. Just really well on one elbow them in, the, in the side of the knee, in the leg, everyone get up. Grab hold of the leg, elbow it, get up. You see, every time they're so dumb, a good striker knocks the other guy down and then starts grappling him. Let him get back up, knock him down again. But striking on the ground, it annoys me. I can see it all the time. Every time I watch a UFC fight, it just annoys the crap out of me. I can't have to switch it off. Because they sit there parallel, no power. Yeah, and you can tend to forget, the bottom as well. But the whole body needs to be the target, man. That's what I keep talking about. You're the use your whole body as a weapon, and his whole body as a target, man. Yeah, go for the legs, go for the inside, outside, go for the toes, go for the ankles. I mean, with strikes, anything. Yeah. You know, uh, don't be a headhunter. Just, well, I think a lot of it comes from not everybody. Again, we're just in, we're just talking here. We're focusing on the ones, the people who make the mistakes, is because their stand up isn't very good. So they don't understand the principles of how to stand and how to generate power, how to not necessarily be a headhunter, but to go for the body. Um, if you mastered all of that on the feet, you take that same principle to the ground. And so, okay, same thing. I don't have to go for the guy's head. I can go for the body, the knees, the legs, whatever. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's an adjustment. It, it's not like something that's going to take 10 years to learn. You know, but it, it all stems from not putting the time and effort that you should on the feet, you know, and, and really learning all the science of power, stance, movement, and, you know, that, that'll pay dividends. And that's stuff you can practice no matter what shape you're in, you know, yeah. it, 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 just like you can, as long as you're able to walk, you can practice your movement because it's all footwork. You see, again, it, to me, it comes down to they've just learned techniques again. They've learned that when they go to guard, this is what you do. It's all techniques, techniques, techniques. No one's taking the principles and applying them. I mean, that that one on the shin that you do, Tony, when they when they got they're behind you and they've got the legs wrapped around this one. Yeah. That one. I just say, used to say to people, just imagine if you yeah, elbow somebody as hard as you can in that shin like that. From the guard, you just you've done something. You got their leg there, and you elbowed it as hard as you could, and got back up. They're going to be in a little bit of pain when you're standing up. Just, a, just a tad. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and you need you can practice that on a heavy pa- bag. You can modify it, or you can you know have shin guards, or you know have have pads 
on the training partner, obviously. So you can, you can, so you can work those strikes and, you know, blast with the forearm and there's, there's, there's different ways of doing it. And once again, you have to understand the mathematical principles. Whereas if I'm on my feet and I'm generating power by doing such and such, by pivoting and this and that, and that's taken from me, how can I replace it on the ground instead of just wild arm punches? Um, And one other thing too is even when you're doing all of this, you have to be cognizant of counter strikes. You still don't want to be sloppy. You know, um, there may be a time where if you have to use two hands, you do it, but then you get your hands back up to defend yourself. You got to defend yourself at all times, you know, um, and realize what targets, if you're the top guy and you're, and he's scissoring you from the bottom, you have to know outside of submissions, forget that. What are my vulnerabilities here for getting striked, for getting struck? What, what are my vulnerabilities? You know, and a lot of people don't know where they're vulnerable uh, because they never really thought about it. But, you know, even the bottom guy can strike you effectively if he knows what he's doing and he can create the angle. You know, I have no problem throwing a wicked hook from the bottom. I'm sure you do too, Russell, but not if I'm flat on my back. Okay. I've got to get that angle. This is what I always talk about with you guys. Get that damn angle. Quit being flat on your back. No good can come from that. Get that angle. And then all of a sudden, as long as you can do some sit-ups and move your, you know, move your hips a little, bam, you get that short little punch, get the guy cup his head, bam, headbutt him, whatever. I don't want to get into it because it's hard to explain verbally, but you know what I'm talking about, Russell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We had a big thing where we say 45 degrees, that 45 degree angle, blah, blah. You know, what lost art of hooking and Tony said from about 45 degrees. And I was like, what? It's the first person I've ever heard apart from us say 45 degrees. Are you talking about angles? You've got to have this angle right. You've got to have that angle right. You've got to be at the right angle, angle, angle. And I'm going, well, at last somebody's speaking the same with us. It's like when we were first, I said, oh, I said, I remember saying to Tony, I said, how come you speak this language, blah, blah, blah. And I remember Tony saying, well, it's the only way to explain it properly, isn't it? Oh, yeah, all right, yeah, good point. <laughs> but that 45 degree, if you're on your back, we say to it all the time, if you're against the ropes or against the wall and you put both your shoulders on there, can you hit anybody hard? No. I go, right, so would you do that on the floor then? Why would you lay on your back and have both shoulders on the floor? Why? Because you, you can't hit them from there, can you? You can't hit hard. If, you, if you're against the wall, you just lift one shoulder off. Or if you're on the ropes, you just lift one shoulder off. You can then start to hit harder. So why, if you're on the floor, would you have both shoulders on the floor? You've got to get, you've got to get one of them off to start. You've got to. And then two if you can. If you've got any core strength, you'll be able to do like a crunch and get yourself... Yeah, and you can strike up like Tony said, you can throw hooks off the box. You can you can throw all your boxing punches and elbows off the box. Yeah, well off the bottom. You know, I I look at the four I look at four functional angles. Okay. I look yeah. at the outside of being straight on, which is a zero angle, which you don't really want. But yeah. I look at 15, 15, 30, 45, and 60 degrees. That's my little arc. 
anything beyond that starts to become you yeah. yourself start to lose weapons or use lose tools. So if you can stay 15, 30, 45, and 60 degrees and live for a month in that 15-degree zone and then the 30-degree zone and 45 and 60 in your training, okay, take four months, spend one month in those zones and with those angles, you will be blown away at the opportunities that are there for strikes and for submissions. And you'll also know what's not there, okay? So some of it's common sense. If I got 15 degrees on you, I'm not going to hit the back of your head, all right? But a lot of people just don't know it. I can ask some of the highest ranking martial artists in the world, what can you do from a 40, 30, from let's say a 30 degree angle? Will they know? I've asked some guys, they had no idea. They never stopped and thought about it. Well, come on, man. This is your line of work. You gotta, you, you have to know these angles. Um, this is stuff that, you know, I should pro- I, I may end up, uh, if you're in the Tri-C program, you learn this eventually. If you're, Maybe with this monthly thing, I'll give you a little taste, but it's it's something you really need to work on, Nico and Joe, is that little, like he's talking about angles. Yeah, I mean, we were saying, if we're stood face-to-face like that, it's a 50-50 fight. And I don't want 50-50. You might be better than me. Right? So I don't want that. But if you're, if I, if you're facing dead in front and I've got an angle on you, and I'll control that front elbow, just as an example. If I'm side on to you like that, and you control my elbow in any way, shape, or form, you can hit me and I can't do anything about it. So if you've got an angle on somebody, you've got an advantage straight away. Striking, grappling, everything. And when you take 15, 30, 45, 60, guess what else appears for you almost magically as if they really did exist. All the pressure points are there when you take the angles. Yeah. It's like they suddenly appear. There they are. I used to show, and I I may have showed it on a snap, no tap. I I told you I don't watch these videos. But um, (laughs) how just by moving, let's say I'm squared up in a boxing stance. By moving my, my lead foot just slightly over, not adjusting my whole body, but just moving my lead foot over slightly, I can now kick you with my right leg in the back of your leg without having to like move you or make a huge adjustment. It's just subtle things that you wouldn't pick up on and, or not you specifically, you in general wouldn't pick up on. And that's what you want. You want these little almost imperceptible uh, movements. You don't want these gigantic tells, you know, so the person knows you're up to something and, Mm -hmm. And misdirection, using a lot of misdirection. Focus on the upper body with my hands, and then all of a sudden, that little move, you might be thinking he's coming with a cross. Nope. I'm kicking your leg out. You know, I'm hitting the back of your knee, and hopefully you're going down, or you're going to bend down a little bit, and then I'm going to front face lock you, or, you know, what have you. This is what I get enthralled with. This is the the high science of, of, like, what you do, what I do, that, you know, this is not beginner stuff. This is advanced, but it's just so much out, you know, so much it's that, you know, that I want to show. And I know that's how you feel about your things. You just want to show these people, do it this way. <clears throat> it's going to make you, you know, it's going to make you famous. 
Well, it's like we said at the beginning, it all starts with footwork. If your feet are in the right place, everything else kind of works. And we say to people, imagine the sniper, right? You know, I'm not sure the mathematics, but a one millimeter movement at his end could be several hundred yards when he gets to the target. Correct. So you want your feet to be like that sniper. Like Tony just mentioned, you're just moving a subtle little movement on the feet allows a kick to happen. You do the same thing, subtle little movement on your feet can put you in range, out of range, and put them out of range, in range. We, we do a move which we call move away and get closer, where we both stand in standard boxing stand, where I can just touch you with a jab, you can just touch me. And I move backwards. I move backwards, but get closer to you. Now that's a frame part for a start. Physically move backwards. You can now no longer reach me, but I can reach you easy. Now that messes people up. It all comes back to the angles that we spoke about earlier, the 15, 30, 40, blah, 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 blah. And the angle of the way you're your angle towards them. Because if you think of your your reach, if you like, it's like an oval, and their reach is like an oval, you've got your long bit of the oval pointing to the short bit of their oval. So their long bit of reach is away over there somewhere where you're not. But your long bit of reach is straight into their body. So you can move backwards, but you get closer, and that messes people up big time. Even top pros have done this with. Okay, let's get ready. Okay, I'll move backwards. Now I can hit you. Like, hold on, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> move back. Oh, I've moved back. Yeah, and they went, yeah. Bing, now I can hit you. Yeah. They're like this far away. And you do it with, you do it And it's just those angles, exactly the same thing Tony's talking about when you're moving the foot and you can do the kick. If you, if you know that, you, this is exactly what I've just explained, because that's what Tony's just explained. Just moving that foot and then he can kick you. If you didn't move the foot, he couldn't kick you, he'd be out of range. Well, and that, here's along those lines, here's another principle. If you've ever watched aircraft, like jet aircraft, commercial airliners way up in the sky, you know, you watch them and they're, they're moving so slowly. Well, they're not. They're, they're moving 500 plus miles per hour, uh, but the distance makes them look so slow. Whereas you can watch a bird just go whizzing by, right? Because you're closer. That's the same principle in fighting. The further away I am from my opponent, the slower my perception is going to be. My punches, everything are going to come. They're going to look and appear slow. So that's yeah. why, you know, you want to be close. The closer you are to your, your opponent, everything is magnified. The speed, now, conversely, you're, it's a negative to you. You've got to be aware that his punches are going to be faster. But you don't even have to be the quickest man in the world. You just have to have the shortest distance to get to the guy. And yeah. The whole perception is is thrown off. And again, this is science. And it's yeah. overlooked in many gyms. It, it's like, why? Why do I need to be close? Okay? Yeah. Explain it. And a lot of people cannot explain it. There's a, there's a whole bunch of science backing all of it up. Uh, we say, I say to people all the time, you, you appear to be much faster than you actually are if you can get your footwork right. And yeah. you can get the angle of your body right. You appear to be much faster than you are. So I'm 56 and I'm still outspeeding people 30 years younger. 
proper fighters, eight round, ten round fighters, because they haven't got they haven't done got the fundamentals right, they haven't got the footwork right, they haven't got the angle of the body right. So even though I'm older and slower and fatter, I appear faster. Not faster, obviously they're faster, but, but don't change it. If you've got if you've only got this far to go, <laughs> rather than this far to go, you're gonna appear faster. And, and it's it's just that knowledge of the of the fundamentals of the, the how the principles of how technique works and this is what to me is all about teaching Tony's a teacher I, I'd like to think I'm a teacher the, the most of the things that's going on it's coaching it's just training they're just it's not real that you might learn a lot of techniques and have a broad knowledge base but there's no depth uh, to me it's all about the depth of understanding you know and if you've got the depth of understanding, that Tony can make things sound very simple. He can instruct it in such a way, teach it in such a way that it's ever so easy for me to pick up. I can just listen to it. Oh, I know what he means. I understand what he's talking about. And to me, that's what teaching is, is to take a, a really difficult, complicated subject and make it easy to understand. And I like the way you break that down, the difference between, you know, actually teaching and just training. It's, yeah. you know, I never quite heard it put, put that way, but I think you've, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, and let the coach be the coach. Don't try to coach the coach. Don't tell the coach what to do. That's another big thing, you know. Um, we know more about what you need than you may need, or than you may know, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. may think you're yeah. really good at something when we know, oh, no, you need a lot of work on that, uh, you know. I'm going to teach you what you need, not what you want. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I've met guys who are very humble, too, who are a lot better than they give themselves credit for, and I let them know that, too. You know, hey, you're really good at this. Yeah. You know, focus on this, because, man, you're you're really good. Um, but, yeah, it, it's all about – you just said it, too, with the depth. That's another great way of looking at it. You have to have the depth of the knowledge base. You. You have to know, not because you were told this is how to do it. Why do I do it? Explain everything behind it. You know, the science, the physiology. And that's where a lot of places, a lot of, you know, a lot of people have trouble going there. Um, so we can, we can prove everything that we tell, everything that we teach, we can prove it. We say, and even after I've proved it, I say, do not take my word for it. Go and prove it yourself. Make sure it works for you. Make sure you can do it. Make sure you're doing it right before you come back to me and say it doesn't work. But prove it to yourself. You know, don't take my word for it. I could be lying. I'm not, but I could be. So always prove it for yourself. But it, we're a great believer in, in yeah, that why question. Yeah, as kids, everybody goes, why? Why? Why is the sky blue? Why plants green? Why does that fall down? Why does it drop this? Why does it blah, blah, blah? And as adults, we, we don't think to a question like that. Why is one of the best things ever? Sometimes you have to say, because it is. Right? When people ask me some of the things on pressure points, stuff like why when you're touching there and you're touching there, they fall over. I just, you just accept it because they do. Because... The answer presupposes that you already understand a lot of the, the science behind it. Like if I said to you, you know, um, Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith went for a walk and it was snowing and icy outside and Mrs. Smith slipped over 
and she's broke the leg in hospital, you don't need me to explain it. You don't say, why did she slip over? Because it was icy. Why is ice slippery? And then you've got to explain, <laughs> why, why, why? Why is she in hospital? Why did she break the leg? You know, blah, blah, blah. All of those things. It's understood. You, you know that ice slipped. So when I say to you, touch here, touch here, they fall over, you go, why? Well, it's a bit like Mr. and Mrs. Smith went for a walk on the ice, you know? She fell over and slipped and broke a leg. You don't need to know all that other stuff. It's presupposed knowledge. You know, so a lot of the whys I can't answer until the knowledge base is up there. If that makes sense. I don't know. That. And that's, I don't mean that to sound like I'm trying to put myself on a pedestal. I'm just trying to explain why sometimes I can't answer a question. Does that make sense? Well, you get the guys that are like, well, if he does this, does this, I'll do that or that. Of course. And I would do this and to counter that. It's a chain of events. Nothing exists yes. in a vacuum. But trust me, you know, when you've been doing things as long as guys like you and I have and others, we've been there, done that. We have answers to all of those things. Um, but it's, it's just sometimes people are just looking to be, you know, contrary. And yeah. that's fine, I guess. But it don't, you know, like you say, we can – explain why it can your instructor do that and i don't want to hear the fact that there's a language barrier or something that's bullshit because they probably couldn't explain it in their native tongue okay um my coach wasn't native english and he got the point across you know i learned everything from, you know uh that he was i i was able to get everything out of him and, and english wasn't his first language so the, the bottom line is you have to know the ins and outs of the hold, you know, or the, the technique, I should say, whatever it is. And, you know, I had some people, like with music, you know, there's, everybody knows why, okay? It's backed up by years and years and years of, of, of theory and, and composers and performers and mathematics. There's no mystical shit there, okay? It's, it's all backed up with numbers. And, Unfortunately, in, in the martial arts world, so much is left to faith, great, great mysteries and, you know, pseudoscience. Uh, I try to get away from all of that and deal with just straight science. I can show you and Russell can show you and there are other some other coaches out there that can show you the science behind it without some pseudoscience mumbo jumbo. Yeah. I always think they go for the mumbo jumbo when they haven't got, when they don't understand it themselves. Because if you truly understand it, you should be able to explain it so that other people can understand it. And that's why when I looked at Tony stuff first years and years ago, when I first saw that lost art, I must have got it within a few months of it coming out, Tony. I must have done. And then, you had hair back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old days, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Not as much as you, time. but I had hair. And then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it that there's somebody there explaining stuff and I could understand what they were talking about, if that makes sense. But they were explaining, it was totally explaining stuff. And it was obvious that the, the way it was being explained, that you've taken something that's really, really complicated and explaining it so that even an idiot like me can get it. And which shocked me that other people didn't understand it. Because I always say, if you're as dumb as me and you can understand it, and you do it, then, you know, that's it. It's real simple. Because if I can understand it, it must be. So I always try to make it as a level where I can pick it up. 
Well, all kidding aside, your mind works that way. You're you're very analytical, and that reflects in your coaching. And you know, we we have that same thought process. Um, yeah, it's just. I mean, yeah, like I said, I've been doing it my whole life. And even back then, 20 years ago, I was still doing it for over 20 years at that point. You know, um, I started in 1977. So, you know, if I, I don't need notes. I don't need crib sheets. You know, just what, you know, tell me what you want to see. You know, that yeah. kind of deal. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but I remember the, you were doing the, uh, the top wrist lock and you was explaining from side control and you was explaining – all these different elements that needed to be right before you put it on. And yet, at the time, when I was watching like BJJ people, they were just trying to explain the, the top wrist lock, whatever they call it, Timor, I think they call it, don't they? Oh, right? And Americana. Then, this is America. Yeah, America. I get this one. Top wrist lock. This one, top wrist lock. Yeah. Anyway, so... Tony's explained all these other things you've got to be right before you even put the technique on. Which I'm thinking, well, that's what we do. We try all that other stuff's got to be right before you go for the point. And he's going, all this stuff, but right. And what Tony's said, all these little bits of the technique, and that's what we would call players in our terminology, the bits that make a technique where all the little individual components. And Tony's going, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do that, you've got to put your knee here, you've got to make sure your hips down there, this hip's got to be there, that one's got to be lower than that one, that knee's got to be up there, your elbow's got to come, you can go, you can smash them on here, you've got to make sure that angle's right, you've got to misalign it. And we said, misalign, that's what we say. And so then you've got, to, you've got to be at that angle. I think we do that angle, we say that angle, striking, blah, blah, and they'll keep listening to all this stuff. He's saying all these words that we use, striking, but he's used them on the floor and he's used them to put that lock on somebody. So I'm going to try it like he said. <laughs> and the other guy is screaming before I can even put the lock on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot. I haven't put it on yet. He goes, fuck off, it hurts. Don't do that again. What? I said, put it on yet. Yeah, that's another guy. And you do all the stuff that Tony said, blah, 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 which is what we were saying about all the different angles for striking. I go, the parallels and everything, it's the same principle just being applied on the floor. And I go, duh, why am I so dumb? I didn't pick this up before until I saw until it's so obvious, it slapped me in the face, sort of thing. And then all of that stuff, all those principles, that's all you got to do is take those principles. If you understand those principles, you can put, you can, you can look at any technique and work out how it could be better if it's not being done wrong. That's why we used to say to people in karate and everything like, we would look at any of your katas and tell you what it means. I said, but you don't do our karate. It's good, man. It's moving. It's only your body. So when Tony says, what do you want on the stuff? When we were doing Katabunkai, we just make it up on the day. We used to turn up at people's things, do seminars, courses on Kata, and say, what Kata do you do? Don't know that one. <laughs> I'll tell you what it means, though. I'll you show the move, and off we go. And it's the same with Tony stuff. That's it. If you understand it, you just do it. And, and this is a bit that, to my mind, coaches instructors, whatever, aren't, aren't doing They're not teaching. They're just training. Do yeah. your push-ups, do your run around the thing, and then do some bad work, see you later. When I was uh, studying music, you know, high level, you know, like advanced theory, it's difficult, man. You know, look at some of the high math and, and physical, you know, the life sciences and shit. You got to put your brain work in it. You know, it's, it, 
And it's just, to me, there's as much, let's call it book work in learning how to fight at, at, at the level that I want you to do as it is gym work, you know, and, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's not simple. If it's simple, it's ineffective. Okay. I'm sorry, but they, they, they have those things. Kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. The delivery means it's uncomplicated, but if you really want to know everything, it's not that simple. There's more than like, if I throw a jab, it's not me just throwing the jab. There's a lot going on that before I deliver that jab. So in that essence, I don't think that's simple. I think there's some exploratory studies that you have to do. And when it comes to submissions, there's even more. And, um, you know, when you start really training with me at the high level, wanting to get certified and stuff, you're going to know more about that than anybody. Okay. That's just, there's just, it's, there's just so much there. And, so far, it's not being exposed to the world. So our secrets, if you want to call them that, are still safe. But whatever. Um, Look, trying to think. I mean, sometimes I think to myself, honestly, I think, you know, what, how come so many people in high position, high ranking, or that, just don't understand what they're doing? And I find it shocking, really. Okay? And then you look back 20 odd years ago minimum because even if you said Tony learned it on the day he filmed it, that which obviously isn't the case. But even so Dost started hugging in ninety nine, I think, yeah. So you say yeah. at least twenty two years ago then, minimum, because there it is on video, at least twenty two years ago to explain it at a level which most people can't understand today, twenty two years later. And they've had twenty two years to look through it and understand it. The, the, just the leg scissors that you did, Tony, in guard, the leg scissors, when you yeah. stretch out, you put a lot of pain on them. I'm still to this day, I've even, I've, I've had loads of people tapping out when I'm I'm on my back and I just do the, your leg scissor and they get them in the floating ribs and they're tapping out. And I say, it's because we've got boxers legs and they can't, I even showed them once what we're doing, your leg scissor. And I said, it's only because we do boxing, you see. Oh, how come boxers legs are so strong? So, you know, you grab them, you've got to learn how to get strong legs. Because they, yeah. they couldn't understand that. <laughs> just, just doing a leg scissor, they couldn't understand. This was quite high ranked as well, where, where all this strength comes from. They didn't understand the, the, the mechanics, the body physics of a leg scissor. They just thought it was me squeezing my knees together. And then when they just said, John, you have a go on me. And of course, they can't squeeze the knees together with any power whatsoever. So it was even more bewildering for them. And it, just a simple thing like that. And that's for years and years and years I've been dining out on that. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, it, it is mechanics. You know, it's it's just simple body structure. And I, I studied it as much as I could through the years, knowing, you know, that I didn't – I wasn't always built like you've seen me on the Lost Art of Hooking or other videos. You know, I was always small kid, skinny. Not necessarily short, but – you know, average height, but skinny. So I had a, I had to utilize everything to the nth degree, you know, high techniques and so on. And, uh, you know, everything I've done, anybody can do with the right coaching. If I walk you through it, you can do it too. That's the thing. I never looked at myself as being overly physically gifted. Outside of, I was fast, but I mean, even that there was faster people out there. So what I've accomplished, anybody can, and as long as you just 
you know, have the guidance properly and put the effort in. It's just all about effort. You know, um, that's all I can say, you know, and really at that point, guys, we're going to pretty much have to wrap this up because I've got to get to the pharmacy and get my mom's medication. I've been rabbiting on. Sorry, my fault. I just been, yeah. No, I mean, I'm thinking the good news, you, you know, We've talked so long that Joe's hair has gotten even longer. Think of that. He's clean shaven when we started. Yeah. (laughs) And utilize, people should learn to utilize that distance. Like the closer you are, the faster your punches are. Well, the further away you are from Joe, the better he looks. See, there's a beauty in all of this, hidden beauty. I look good at 13 degrees 30 degrees 45 all the different angles wherever you go it just it's always a better look there is no bad look that's another thing you'll discover when you work those angles wow see even even i learned something today you've learned something too russell and nico never stop learning well never like stop. joe says joe always says it's about himself he's i'm joe cardinal i'm a beautiful man <laughs> there you go obviously obviously his eyesight's perfect as well <laughs> well for people who are interested and i highly recommend everyone look to russell and learn his techniques it's russellstutley.com um joe will put a link on the youtube page um with his website please do that joe and uh he's not only a, a, just a knowledgeable 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 guy he's down to earth he doesn't have any um he's not presumptuous but kind of like him and me, you know, we've been through the ringer. We've been doing this for so long. You know, we, we, we're just looking for dedicated people that want to learn. But Joe can also, or Joe, uh, Russell can not only show you, he can tell you how to. That's so important, the how to. And not everybody can do that. They can ooh and ah you, but he can more than just that. He can make you as good as you can you can get. So if you're interested in any of his points, pressure points or anything, check his website out. He, he's great. Thank you, Tony. I've gotten all shy and embarrassed now. Thank you. That's okay, man. You know, um, you're, you're around greatness when you're around Joe Cardinal. So we're all brought down several notches. I, I feel rather humbled, actually. Yeah, and ugly compared to Joe. Always remember that. Oh, it goes without saying. It's a- well, guys, then I guess we will wrap this up, and I will see you on next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. You had some good questions today, Nico. Thanks. Uh, we got an interesting guest. I, I really would like to have him back on. So. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Russell, you've been initiated, and you didn't know it. Uh, Nico, a few weeks ago when we had Andre Verdun on, Nico called him Andrew. And mm-hmm. last week, Nico called you Russell Stutley. No, so, I, called him, I called him Russell Crow. <laughs> well, so you when, see, when you get your name. Because the E softens the T, you see. This is a bit of grammar for you Americans. The, as in absolutely. You don't say absolutely, do you? The E softens the T. It's just a little bit of basic grammar. We gave you a perfectly good alphabet, and you chaps over there, you tend to ruin it, don't you? 
<laughs> I thought it'd be a jolly good wheeze if I told you how the alphabet actually works. And there you go. Oh, Jesus, which is jolly good. Yeah. See, now we've learned absolutely stutely. <laughs> That's, but yeah, if you give your name, understand the, the principle, the E softens the T. Think of it as a principle. Well, on that note, principle, it was a pleasure, and we will have you back on if you're willing to come on. Cool, that'd be great. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Thank you. Lovely. All right, guys. Well, you take care, guys. Everybody, thanks for watching. Hit that like and subscribe button, by the way, and ring that bell for the YouTube thing. One.